no turning back, PJ. We're getting into our top 100 movies list right now, right here. I what are your thoughts? I can't believe it. I can't believe we made it. Um, <sighs> if you thought the honorable mentions list was something else, uh, it's not going to get better. This is definitely our list, and we're you know we're doing it. I don't know how you can be upset with our honorable mentions list because it's not like we don't have great movies, and you don't have any context of our top 100. I guess the take that I get the most or understand the most is like, boy, if you have a movie like what, what's like the best movie in our honorable mentions, consider ex machina, like for example. Okay. That's a good example. Yeah. If you, if you have ex machina in your honorable mentions, I can't wait to see what you got in your top 100. <laughs> <laughs> what is Seth Rogen been listening to our podcast? Yeah. It's Seth oh, Rogen. Awesome. He's doing the, the commentary. Yeah. I, I understand that to an extent, but our, I think our most controversial movie slot is actually number 100 right I, at the top i legitimately think that but it, it's it's more than just like what the movie is it's more about like it's the first thing out of the gate yes that <laughs> that gives you an impression of what the list is and it's also the very first movie that you compare to all of the honorable mentions so it kind of doesn't matter what it is per se sure because no matter what that's where your mind is gonna go now it also just so happens to be a very interesting movie at our top 100. There's a lot going into it, and it's very complex, and I'm ready to get into it. Very excited. I think people are really stoked. People have been uh, reaching out to me, excited about the honorable mentions list, but also excited about what we're about to unveil right yeah, here, right Yeah, we've now. been getting a lot of traction on social media, a lot of you guys reaching out saying that we were reminding you of movies that you hadn't seen in a while or you just missed and like all these great movies that you could revisit. And I honestly hope that we are spurring people to, you know, revisit things or reevaluate things with the list. I mean, that's always cool at least. Well, e even with me, there were a couple of movies on this list that I had never seen before. You and me both. Did you watch any of them? I did. Uh, one of them I watched with you right after we made the list. That's true. Um, and then there's a couple more that I've been trying to revisit along the way. So, you know, I think we're doing all right, man. Out of the 33 that we're going to reveal today on this episode, I've watched all but two. So I think I think I was missing four or five. So I either watched two or three. So I, I think on this list, there's only two movies that I have not seen. So guys, remember, especially... Especially if you didn't listen to the honorable mention list. This this whole thing, it's very much supposed to be representative of uh, my taste and PJ's taste. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to recap real quick sort of how we got to where we are. So the honorable mentions, I mean, we just had hundreds of those, th those things. And it was just a matter of uh, dwindling all of them down. We decided on 33 because we thought, hey, why not we just do 33 movies per episode? We're doing a four-part series here. Definitely check out that episode if you have not already yet. It's in the feed right now. But, uh, yeah, I just want to talk about the process again real quick because, I mean, this is it. We're going to actually show exactly, show our cards here. And it's going to be very evident because there's a few things that we did, a few measures, a few steps that we took that make a lot of these movies make sense and where their placement is. It's, right. It's kind of like... We didn't rank them individually, no. necessarily. We kind of grouped them and figured out. And it's funny, too, because what we're going to find out, I think in this list, definitely in the other two, but I think in this list there's going to be a couple of uh, interesting, ironic neighbors to each yeah. other. There, there were, we just kind of laughed that 
two movies would neighbor each other and they would have like a whole hell of a lot in common and it was kind of funny that they were side by side and it happened a couple of times which was really interesting it was just kind of the placement of what we did and what we went along with and you know i think the thing that i still like about this list the most is that this is very much a ryan selling and pj campbell list like i really happy that it's very indicative of our tastes like it just very much is a list that belongs to us and i think that that's really cool and like we're going to get into how everything placed and whatnot because ryan just said he's going to go over it again but just take note that something that we kind of talked about before like just because if your movie may not be on this list doesn't make it less great to you and it shouldn't just remember that this is our list of our tastes and it's very much our thing so just because yours either ranks really low on the list in like the top 60 to 100 that doesn't make it a bad movie i mean these are the 133 films that we thought needed to be mentioned over the span of this last decade right to put things into perspective we're covering 133 movies in this series chances are number 134 is also a really good fucking movie correct you know what i mean like we're just we're spoiled with all of these. We really, really are. So just to put that into perspective, also, if you find yourself getting really frustrated, I get it. This is a spirited like conversation. I totally get that. It's a lot of fun. Someone who enjoys rankings myself, it's a lot of fun to get kind of frustrated in a weird way. It's like, come on, man. Can you really think that? Ha, ha, ha. As long as you're not like super butthurt about it, I, I think it's a lot of fun to sort of uh, hear these things unveiled, especially if they sound or appear differently than how you would do that do it but at the same time it's like you can also just like not so much get hung up on the actual number you know what i mean just like celebrate the 100 movies that we're going to be talking about and maybe it just matters less that one is ranked over the other at least we just had a conversation and we got to reminisce about how great the 2010s were yeah and i think that was something that you and i had kind of tried to do was at one point eventually it had to become it didn't necessarily really matter where it was ranked we were still talking about it in the top 133 films right like that's really what matters these are movies that we care very preciously about no matter what um and i think it's going to be very interesting like deep really deep diving into all of it mm. because there's definitely some choices on here that people are going to go what in the world but i'm really looking forward to that kind of reaction uh, number 100 especially like right out the gate yeah Number 100's hilarious. I'm um, so happy. So, real quick, just to recap how we got here, PJ and I sat down at the kitchen table with a notebook and pencil, and we just went through every movie that we knew of. It came out each individual year. We wrote them all out. We let the the movies that just stood no chance go, and we wrote down just the most notable, our favorites of that year. From there, we sort of ranked movies within those years so like we we ranked the animated movies that came out in 2010 we ranked the superhero movies that came out in 2010 we ranked the oscar movies that came out in 2010 we just kind of found categories so that we could see tiers there was a number one for each of those categories and we knew which ones may be favored another that didn't mean that a number six on one list still wasn't better than a number one on another but it was just a a, a way to gauge and, and and find some placement there so we did that for all 10 years in in this decade and what did we do next? I can't remember. So once we got everything kind of squared away in those, we started ranking essentially the bottom tens. Like we'd we'd get the top ten for each year, 
then once they were ranked, we would take the bottom 10 from every year and rank those amongst themselves. And that would basically inform our 91 to 100. No, you skipped like so many steps. <laughs> like, no, you didn't explain that well at all. So, so basically what would happen is what we did is we, we separated all the candidates, like the honorable mentions versus what we actually thought stood a chance. So we kind of had like two sections. Um, and what we did within uh, each year, we eventually arrived at ranking a top 10 for each year. Mm-hmm. And so then the number 10s of each of those years, you said like a worst 10. It wasn't worst 10. It was just... Well, the, I, I just meant the bottom 10 of the... Not like worst, you, but like... It sounded like you said bottom 10 movies. Like it oh, was no, no, like we ranked like worst the, movies. T- so the, right. the 10, 10 of each year, year yes. then became 100 through 91. And then the 9 of each year sort of became the... Yeah, there we go. So yeah, that's the, more what The 90 through 89. And so we also had some movies that were... Once we had them split up within the years, we also had some movies on deck. Uh, one that you chose as an honorable mention, mm-hmm. one that I chose as an honorable mention, and then one we agreed upon. So then we looked at the individual list... And we wanted to make sure that if there was a movie that one of us had seen that the other hadn't, we at least wanted to even the playing field out. So if in one year there were two movies in our top ten that I hadn't seen, then we would take one of them out and I would put in one that you hadn't seen. Yep. Or we would remove them and put in something that we agreed on collectively. That way, at least it evened out our participation. Yeah, and then those movies that necess- that maybe got pulled out or whatnot could have ended up back in the honorable mentions list. Right. And so you might have seen some of those in those bottom 33 that we talked about right. that were not ranked. Those were just what was left over when everything was kind of said and done. And on top of that, we had already nuked a lot of other options from that. So yeah. it just became a really kind of interesting 133. Right. I've shown a couple of people the list. Have you? Yeah, I've showed a couple of people too. So one thing that I've gotten a couple of times is the fact that they're like so surprised that like 2019 movies are as high on the list as they are. And I didn't get that. Like I understand their point that there's recency bias, but like I, no matter where we put the 2019 movies on the list, no matter what, our opinions can change even next year. Correct. So it's like, I, I feel very confident in how I feel about the 2019 movies, whether they just happened or not. Yeah, and I thought that was something that you and I were very cognitive of while we were doing it. Like, we really tried to pay attention to the idea of recency bias and things like that. Like, we worked really hard to make sure that everything ranked how we felt like they should. But, kind of, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even and know I if don't that even, was a problem, though. No, it wasn't. We, we ranked... We rank the year the way that we rank the year no matter what. So it's right. like, I, I know absolutely what my number four movie is right now. Sure, it, just it like I know what my number three would have been or right. vice versa. And, and it doesn't matter that it's going to be different next year because it could be different next year no matter what. The entire list could be different whether it's a 2019 movie or a 2017 movie. So right. It's I mean, the, the list is the list where we are right now in our lives. So... Um, so yeah, there's going to be a lot of, I mean, there's, it's an even spread for the most part. I mean, there's just as many 2019 movies as there are 2010 movies and that's just kind of how it worked out. But again, like it, it's fine. It's the 2010s. Of course, 2019 is going to be represented no matter what. That'd and, be, that'd be silly if we were just like, oh, it's probably too close. Just leave it all. I mean, that would also totally defeat the purpose of this entire list. I mean, <laughs> if we didn't have any movies from 2019, then why are we doing this list? That's you right. know what I mean? Like, come on, you guys. That's right. Anyway, that was funny. That was, you know, I have my moments. So anyway, number 100, I'm really excited about. But first, before we get into that, if you need a refresher 
I'm not going to go over the list of honorable mentions, and I'm not going to make you listen to a two and a half hour podcast. Go to Letterboxd. We have a profile up now. Letterboxd.com slash moviehousepod. A lot of you already started following us. I thought that was fantastic. Including I loved, me. I love seeing those emails flood in after last week's episode. So definitely go to Letterboxd.com slash moviehousepod. There will be a list of all of the honorable mentions, and... I will also make lists for every podcast that we do. So there'll be four individual lists. I'll probably eventually do a fifth one that is one through 133, but I'm going to break them out, break them up just so that they are revealed in the timely fashion. So that is going to be up. At the time that you're hearing this, you will always have the last list. Right. Just out of context. So guys, go to, again, letterbox.com slash moviehousepod. That's where I'm updating all of this stuff. Um, before we reveal our number 100, do you have any uh, other observations or anything you want to go in with? No, I, I just want to say, uh, again, you know, just remember our list is our list. Don't get super upset. Don't take it super serious. We had a great time doing this and I'm hoping you guys are going to enjoy this kind of crazy deep dive into the top 100 films ranked by us. I, am very excited to start revealing some of these movies because there's quite a couple on here. I'm almost guaranteeing there's people probably that people kind of probably missed and I'm hoping that we kind of push them to finally see it. So let's talk about John Carter. Yeah, boy. (laughs) Number 100, John Carter. Again, it's weird because this puts the entire list into context. It also puts the honorable mentions into a context. So, Here's what's weird about John Carter, guys. First of all, it's it's a movie that me and PJ believe is very underrated. It's also a movie that we bonded over. There's like a secret hidden podcast that we recorded about John Carter and our love for it. Yes. Something we bonded over uh, early on, and it's very underrated. And people are probably already like, why the fuck <laughs> is that movie better than Captain America Civil War? Again, just remove the numbers and let's consider how great all of these are. John Carter just does not get the credit that it deserves. Uh, no, personally. definitely not. I don't know that, like, say the second act is the strongest thing in the world. Like, maybe the quest to find, like, I, I think about the Millennium Falcon tree that they go into. Right. Like, that's the kind of part where it's a little bit of a lull. But everything else about John Carter is actually, I think, wildly entertaining, mm-hmm. wildly funny. Just a fun adventure, sci-fi, fantasy, uh, action flick that at one point we just had no idea could get made. And hadn't been made in a long time like that, you know? Like, pulp storytelling's pretty dead, I mean, for the most part, and that's what John Carter is. And I think the thing that people forget, this is something I actually talked about with someone recently who had no idea. John Carter is the granddaddy of all science fiction. Like, without John Carter... Star Wars and some of the things that we love doesn't really exist because Princess of Mars, the very first John Carter book, came out in 1912. So it was kind of a big part of what made science fiction science fiction. And the film itself is such a great amalgamation of like a couple of the first three books, but also of what cinema had kind of become. It had to be different than what had pulled from it Hmm. while also – being a love letter of the stuff that pulled from it, if that makes sense. Right. So there's definitely some similar vibes to movies you've probably seen, but it's so 
entertaining and so fun. And Taylor Kitsch is so great in the lead. And Andrew Stanton directed the hell out of this for his first live-action film. Like, coming from animation at Pixar, this was a big step up. And I think that this movie gets wildly overlooked because people look at it as like this giant financial bomb that no one went to see. There's all this drama and stuff around it. But honestly, it's easily one of the best blockbusters of the decade. And not only that, what a score by Michael Giacchino. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that it's just like one of the best off-brand Disney movies. Definitely. Like live action aside from, well, Pirates of the Caribbean probably isn't. I would say Tron Legacy is off-brand from Definitely. Disney. Just because it's not an Lone Ranger tale and all that bullshit. Yeah, like Lone Ranger is an off-brand Disney movie. Prince of right. Persia. like yeah. They do do these movies from time to time. Yeah, and John Carter I think is is one of the best. It also just doesn't get enough credit for the work that it did in motion capture. Correct. Because I don't know exactly how much of it the, the sets were practical, but it was like Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, got all the credit for being uh, li- or motion capture in a live-action setting. But John Carter literally did that first. Like yep. We watched some of the behind-the-scenes, or I, I don't know if you did, but I did, when we talked about it the last time. And, I mean, they, they're looking ridiculous out in the middle of the desert on stilts. Yep. Willem Dafoe and company. And they didn't get any credit for that. With all those cameras on their faces, same exact way. Like, right. And, it, again, I think that's because the story behind this film, as people see it, is financial failure versus right. the story of, hey, look, they pushed technology to its limits. And, like, Andrew Stanton went out into the middle of the goddamn desert to make this movie. Yeah. And it's really cool. And you got to look at the cast in here, too. Like, Brian Cranston in it. Like we just said, Willem Dafoe is in it. Like, there's so many great people. Mark Strong. Yeah. It, it's a great movie, man. It's genuinely funny. I was shocked at how much joy I felt because... Like when I walked out of the theater in 2010, I saw this in the theater, and you were at the premiere, right? Yes, I was. I walked out of the theater in 2010. wasn't in this space yet. wasn't really covering movies. I just I, I liked movies, and I was excited to see that movie in particular. When I walked out, I didn't have any understanding of what it was going to mean at the box office. I just walked out knowing that I really enjoyed that movie, and I sort of carried that with me up until this point. The box office didn't really mean anything to me other than I wished other people saw it and that I could have gotten a sequel. So, I get that it's easy to fall into the, oh, it was a box office bomb, and who remembers John Carter? Why don't you take a second to remember John Carter? Because it's, uh, it's a whole lot of fun, and at least at the time we're recording this, I think it's on, is it on Disney Plus or Netflix? It, it's on, it's on I believe it's on Netflix at the moment, but it is moving to Disney Plus. Yeah, so. um, also, shout out to Lynn Collins, because Lynn Collins doesn't get enough love for her uh, portrayal of Deja Thoris in this, just... There's something about the fact that she's such a strong female hero, and she definitely belongs in the conversation with some of the greatest action heroines. And again, because people didn't see it, they just overlook it. Like, she's the Princess of Mars, and she's a badass. Yeah. So, I mean, seriously, guys, check this movie out. For sure. Do you have the list in front of you? I, I was going to say, you, you can tee up this next movie, number 99. Number 99, and this was. This is something that you and I went back and forth on on which one of these films we wanted on the list because there was two very different options, but we both felt like they needed to have a place. We also were very hesitant to put multiple movies from the same franchise, and for this franchise in particular, I just think that 
like it barely has any business being in the top 100 let alone like i i could never allow two of these movies to be on the top right. 100 so i think we we finally settled on this one and uh I, th- I think it makes sense yeah and kind of my thought process behind furious 7 being our 99th film was not just the fact that fast 5 was the other one that we were talking about and it was the fact that that film really is a great action film. It's really the thing that revitalized that franchise and made people start taking it serious. But the thing about Furious 7, I think, at the end of the day that we chose it for was not only was it actually wildly entertaining as a film itself, but for what it stood for, for the kind of the end of an era for that franchise, but also for the saying goodbye to Paul Walker. Right. Paul Walker's untimely death while they were making this film completely changed the course of this movie and the fact that James Wan and Vin Diesel and everyone involved was able to write this ship and make a film that was still massively entertaining but also incredibly beautifully heartfelt by the time it was over Mm. is really a testament not to just what the franchise had become but what Paul meant to the fans and I think that that was really cool so where I was with this movie, I was debating between this and Fast Five, obviously, in my head. And I think that the Fast and Furious success, it, it's owed primarily to The Rock post-Fast Five. Totally. So with that context, I want to go with Fast Five just because The Rock, Hobbs, is sort of on the back in the back burner in Furious 7. He's kind of just like in a hospital bed the entire time. And uh, I just didn't feel like that was fully representative of what made Fast and Furious great. And the more and more I thought about it, it's larger than life in a weird way. Like, Fast Five put the franchise back on the map, but Furious 7 is probably the most, like, larger-than-life movie, I think. Not only does it continuously embrace its, like, just absolute absurdity, but but again, the, the fact that they had to weave in, and we saw it with Rise of Skywalker, the fact that they actually successfully weaved in yep. a post- Posthumous? I can't never say yeah, that word right. Yeah, I think actor, that sounds right. Actor. Um, and, and, pulled it, and also the fact that Charlie Puth, big fan of Charlie Puth here, sang the, sang the title song uh, for, for Furious 7. I, I think that uh, it, it just wasn't that big of a deal, especially when we're debating the number 99 spot. But totally. I, I'm happy to say that I do enjoy Furious 7. I was there in the theater just like everybody else. Had an enjoyable time. But uh, I just don't really hold the Fast and Furious 7 in high regard. But we also talked about this aspect of greatness, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we had a conversation about, like, we do want to discuss movies that we think also just represent the 2010s. Whether if it's at the box office or if it's a a notable franchise that we believe should get some recognition. I do think one movie from this franchise should get recognition, without a doubt. And uh, I was happy to give it to Fury 7. Yeah, and I think this was also the first Fast film that made a billion at the box office. So that felt like this should be the one that was on the list. Mm -hmm. And just something about it really speaks to me. And again, shout out to James Wan for... Like, he came from horror. That's what people knew him for. And he also showed that he was more than just a horror director, which I think was really great. Like, Death Sentence was probably the closest thing he had done to action at that point. But this was like a full-blown action film. And he really did something special with it in the end. Speaking of Death Sentence, number 98. No, not even the same decade. (laughs) Uh, Number 98's film. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard the phrase, attack the block? I definitely do, and I hope that our listeners do too. This is a weird one for me. So attack the block, 
the first time I saw it, I was still living in Sacramento. I hadn't moved down to Los Angeles just yet. And they did like an early screening through Sony where they were trying to figure out how to market the movie. So it was like a test screening, but not really. So I saw it months in advance Mm -hmm. and I felt absolutely in love with it. The only thing I knew was that Edgar Wright produced it. Nick Frost was in it. And Joe Cornish, who had helped write some of the Cornetto stuff was involved. Yeah. So I was already excited, obviously a big fan of the Cornetto trilogy, couldn't wait to see exactly what they did, and this ended up being like a really fun and unique sci-fi adventure film set inside of an apartment complex. It was also strangely a a stoner alien invasion movie. Yeah, totally. <laughs> which there was actually two of those this decade, which is really bizarre when you think about it. <laughs> right. Like, legitimately, and yet this was easily the better of the two. Yeah, without a doubt. So... I remember learning about Attack the Block. It was actually from SlashFilm.com. And every now and then, these film sites, and I'm not dogging them, it's just the reality of it, but every now and then these film sites will just like go all in on their anticipation for a movie. Yep. Slash Film was just all about Attack the Block. And I was reading Slash Film religiously. They were they were just talking about how excited they were. I I don't remember if there was like a set visit included, but they you know had gotten into it and seen it and talked about it, and they really really were hyping this thing up. And I don't remember exactly. Oh, I'll tell you what. I was working at Blockbuster at the time. That's amazing. And we like barely got it in. We just got like one copy of it. We got like fifty copies of Fast Five that year. Oh, well, it wasn't the same year. I don't know, but uh. Attack the Block, it barely came in, and I finally got it that way, I think. And um, I tell you what, man, it at the time, like, all of that was new to me. All of the actors, I know uh, What's-Her-Face went on to become Doctor Who. Yeah, Jodie um, Whittaker. I, I kind of just knew about Nick Frost, and that was Me it. too. I had, dude, who who of any of us knew who John Boyega was at the time? Nobody. Legitimately Nobody. no. And... It's what's funny in retrospect. I thought it was very funny. There's a lot of uh, jokes in there about FIFA because it was so British. Yeah. But at the same time, I remember thinking to myself, you know what? I'm having a ball, but I can't understand half of what they're saying because, to its credit, it is so steeped. And it's it's in the title, too. Attack the Block. It is very much steeped into uh, that aspect, that culture that I'm just like not at all familiar with. But I found it. Super entertaining, a whole lot of fun, and also visually striking. Like, I don't think this movie gets enough credit for how creative they, uh, creatively they brought the aliens to the screen. You, it's, it's it's such a brilliant decision to not be able to see them because it hides, I don't know, maybe whatever in, incapability they have with the right. special effects and to just make it scary with those teeth. I thought that was brilliant design. Well, I, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I think the designs for the creatures, because of exactly what you just said, makes them incredibly iconic, not just for the decade, but they're some of my favorite kind of alien creatures from movies because I love yeah. that darkness with just glowing blue. There's just something about it that's very mesmerizing, and it's very, very cool. This movie has great comedy. It's got great action. Um and I think the end just really solidifies why we like it so much. Like, there's just something you feel inspired by the time it's over as weird as that sounds like you care about these characters enough that you feel inspired and they're all looked at like they're from the wrong side of the block, if you will. But 
they're all good kids in the end. Like it, it does kind of have like a superhero ending to it, doesn't it? It does. It really does. <laughs> and I don't want to. If you haven't seen it, I mean, there will probably be spoilers. I would guess as we go through this, but this is one of those movies. Like I don't want to spoil it. I want you to enjoy the ride because it's so much better to just let it happen. Sure. But yeah, man, I'm glad it made it on the list. But we have next is a film that you and I were both very excited about. It was one that I was glad that it stayed in the top 100 as we were doing the list, and that was Upgrade. This is a very cool sci-fi film. Again, it kind of fell right next to Attack the Block, which is funny to me. I was going to say, they're very like-minded. Yeah, they're very like-minded films, and... In a year where Upgrade and Venom came out, this was the better Venom film. It that was. not nearly enough of you saw. It, w- it was the better Venom film, but also the fact that, like, Logan Marshall Green, I didn't even, like, really pick up on this, but he's picked up this, like, discount Tom Hardy moniker. Definitely. Which, like, I understand with this comparison, but at the same time, I don't feel like they've done any of the same types of things to warrant that. Absolutely I, I was not. Like, I guess you are saying that you they look alike, and like maybe I don't know. I, I mean, I guess just because they're they're two guys, they're two <laughs> they guys who are bearded sometimes. But I just never would have thought to compare those those two actors. But this movie does allow you to do that, I guess, because it is like you said, the better Venom film, and I feel like that that is. I feel like that's the popular opinion. I know that there are definitely people who like Venom, but I think I, I haven't heard anybody say that Upgrade is bad. No, I don't think I know anyone who said Upgrade is bad. And the th- the very interesting thing about this was Leigh Whannell wrote and directed this. And for those who don't know, Leigh Whannell, he has worked with James Wan on and off on many different projects. The most, o- the most obvious being the Insidious films. Mm. He's the writer of all of the Insidious films, and he was the director of the third one. And for most people, the third film is considered to be the weakest um, direction and writing. And... So I wasn't sure what him following that up was going to look like, and I was kind of nervous, to be honest with you. And then the hype started rolling around this thing. Like, the people in this space were super on board for this movie. The more that they saw it, the more they were getting all hyperactive and crazy. And I was like, well, I got to check this out. And it was such a fun throwback to the 80s action films that we hadn't really seen in a while. Mm. But also just for being a micro-budget action film – it feels a lot bigger than it is, and I thought it that does. Blumhouse did like a really nice job letting it be this really different film that they don't normally do. Yeah, I put this on the other day. I saw that it was on HBO, and I rewatched it, and it was the second time that I'd seen it up until this point. And I just like couldn't believe how much I was enjoying it the second time around. Like it hadn't been tarnished whatsoever. The recency bias, like it didn't matter. I was still into it. I thought that Logan Marshall Green fucking crushed it, dude. Oh, and absolutely. I do think he is like very deserving of a different type of career. I like, do too. Even before Prometheus, I, I remember the first time I saw him, he played Ryan Atwood's brother in the OC. That was the first time I saw him. Uh, not that I was like particularly taken by him at the time, but I, I'm great with faces and names, so I just knew who he was. But I feel like he just should have had a completely different career. And even like post upgrade, he showed up recently in. Uh, uh, when they see us right. on, on Netflix, I saw him there, and it was good to see him. But I don't know, man. I just feel like he's deserving of a lot more, and we haven't given him enough to do. But I think Upgrade, if anything, is honest. It's honestly one of the best sci-fi movies of Absolutely. the decade. Like we we haven't quite figured out 
that yet. I guess you could pull apart every sci-fi movie that we include in the top 100 list, but uh, it's up there for sure. And I, I just adore this film. I do too. And uh, great action pieces, man. Like yeah. for the that first time you see him in action is so good and you're just like wow logan marshall green like the way he acts with his face while letting his body do what it's doing that's unreal the body language how they fight like it's almost like i mean it very much does look like somebody else is controlling them they they are somehow moving their body in a way that it looks like they're not actually doing it which is crazy it kind of they kind of look like the wacky wailing inflatable tube people like they're kind of just flailing about but it's it also has a lot to do with how he shot it like yeah visually that cinematography is like so arresting i remember seeing it in the trailer and feeling like i hadn't really seen anything like that yet and um I still feel that way. I mean, just the visual language of that alone, it's pretty pretty interesting and striking. So, uh, a lot of goodness going around with Upgrade. Totally. I completely agree. Number 96 is a movie that I wish was a whole lot higher, but I understand exactly where it is. Personally, I just, I think the world of this movie, and that is Wonder Woman. Oh, yeah. Definitely. We This was one that I was actually surprised it ended up as high as it did, or low as it did, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it. Well, how do you want to look at it? There are two different different points. No, I know, but <laughs> you shocked about how, you mean how high in terms of like everything else that we had that we erased? No, as in like, I guess the back half. So I guess high in. I thought it might be lower on the list or okay. higher on the list. It's weird because we're going no backwards. So higher on the list to me would be further down. I guess but no higher on the list would be above ninety six. <laughs> Yeah, but we're going backwards, so we're technically going higher. That whatever. I'm surprised where. It are was. you surprised that? Are you surprised that we haven't already talked about it? Yes. Okay, that's lower. You're okay. surprised it is not lower on Correct. the list. Okay, not, there. It's not higher. Lower. <laughs> I'm not. I wish it was higher because I adore this movie and I push back against the people that. You know, it's not, it's not even that I disagree, but I hate the people that discredit this movie because the third act is lacking. It's not that I don't get it. I do think that that movie has a villain problem, very much so. The fact that, like, Ares is just out of nowhere. Uh, what's his name? Thuis? David Thuis? David Thuis. David Thuis, yeah. yeah. Thuis, whatever. The fact that it's just him, just like, this nothing character that was introduced into the movie. It could have been Dr. Poison. It could have been wh- whatever. That That conversation aside... I have always still been very fond of the pathos that's involved in that final third act. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of just speaks to maybe that one thing that just isn't that strong throughout. But I also think that that movie does a million other things right and perfect and certainly better than anything that DC had done up until this point, maybe even more so. But I was in a movie theater watching that movie, praying to God that it was good and it just kind of blew me away from scene to scene. Um, I, w- I was shocked that I was as engaged in this character. I have no history with this character, the fandom, uh, other than the fact that obviously socially conscious, she's a she's a huge character, the Holy Trinity of DC. I, I could not believe how convincing this movie was that I w- that I was a Wonder Woman fan. If that's if that's if that makes sense. No, definitely because. It's kind of that weird thing going back to like 2008 when people just discovered who Iron Man was through the movie and suddenly people were like, Iron Man is cool. You know what I mean? Like most people didn't know who Iron Man was other than being like a B-list Marvel character at that point. So Wonder Woman doing that, not that she's a B-list character, everyone put the knives down, she's one of the Holy Trinity. But 
I understood also people like you who didn't really know the character. And that's crazy that this movie worked on a level that was so good that she became pop culture icon all over again. Right. You know, it had been a while since the TV show, and the TV show is a very different representation of what Wonder Woman could be versus what the movie did. And what I will say more than anything that I love about this film is that I love the World War One setting. I think it just sets yes. it apart from every other comic book film. It's the same way I feel about First Avenger being set at World War Two. Like they are, it makes them visually interesting, but it also makes the movies more interesting because you're taken to a place in time where the stuff that you're so used to seeing is no long like it's not there and i love the idea of that no man's land sequence that almost didn't even make it into the movie because right. it's just so awesome well i think that's just a testament to patty jenkins who totally. directs the fuck out of this movie but also gal gadot because what she did what they did but what she did was bring us out of this dc depression especially everything going on with her going in and out of batman v superman it's like hey are you even an actress right like, that was the conversation and it kind of is to this character's benefit that she has the her accent the broken english whatever you want to call it that gal gadot has because you can kind of get away with being a little stilted versus how people carry themselves in a normal setting so like and i'm not discounting how great of a job i think gal gadot did i think it's that was gal gadot's coming out party like hey i can do this but it also worked to the character's benefit so the fact that i just walked out of that theater so in love with her but also the spirit of that character and what I thought she did such a great job representing. I just think it's like otherworldly. It's one thing totally. to come out of Black Panther and be like, yeah, Chadwick Boseman, but not even Chadwick Boseman. No. As Black Panther, like gets me riled up as much as uh, Gal Gadot does as Wonder Woman. And we've seen it most recently. This whole uh, Wonder Woman 84 trailer came out and I, I've seen it like a million times mm -hmm. and it's to the testament of what was built off of the back of that movie. So... Um, I, I can agree that the villain is not great. I think that Chris Pine and her are fantastic throughout. It is, it is beautiful. It is touching. You touched on the no man's land. I just think it does a lot of things right. And, uh, I just, I, I love it to pieces. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. It's just a movie that works on every level and I'm a big fan. Um, I mean, even its weaknesses aside, it's just yeah. a great movie, but moving into our number 95, this is one that. For a little bit, it actually looked like it wasn't going to make the list, but I really, really, really wanted it to, and I'm glad it finally did, and that was The World's End by Edgar Wright. It was the last film in the Coronetto trilogy, and this is a movie that I think compared to Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, it gets a bad rap because people look at it as the weakest of the three, and I honestly think that could not be farther from the truth. I think that like, it was so long after Hot Fuzz, people weren't sure what to expect and they wanted it to be more like those first two but Edgar Wright had come so far as a filmmaker at that point and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost had also come so far as actors at that point like they were no longer just a trio that had been working together since Spaced and so them coming back to this universe to do one more movie it felt like the most I guess adult would be the right way. Like they showed the most growth yeah. as actors and as a filmmaker that it stands out to me as the strongest film in this series for a lot of reasons for that. And I feel like it's also the most personal. I, I agree with that. I mean, that's part of the story, right? It's right. the fact that all these friends are getting back together to do the same, totally. to find some sort of communion. And it's very different than yeah. Shaun of the Dead, which feels like they're about overgrown kids. 
Correct. That, that haven't matured and like and yeah. hot fuzz as well. Absolutely. I, I, I would say like personally it's my least favorite of the three just because I, I just hold those other tunes with high regard. And I, I debate I think Hot Fuzz might even be my favorite. I know a lot of people like Shaun of the Dead, but that doesn't discredit what we have here because I'm a massive fan of the Cornetto trilogy. And I it, it's probably this might be the movie that I, I've gone the longest without seeing, so it's okay. not super fresh in my memory. But uh, I did adore this movie, and I do think that it is definitely not only supposed to be here to represent th- this team and the Cornetto trilogy, but it's also just, like, easily one of the best comedies of the decade. Just easily. because comedies were so weak. So we had to talk about The World's End. Totally. And I think that one of the most interesting things about it is it just feels so different again like what we were talking about just because it was so strikingly different than what they had done before right. even simon Pegg playing totally against type in essentially mean the nick frost role if you will and mm. that was so interesting you've got a great supporting cast on top of it like they tried to get everyone to come back from all the other movies that they could it's just really fun man like there's just something really special about it and if you haven't seen it in a while like i really recommend revisiting it because you might be surprised how much it actually speaks to you in the end like really yeah i i mean at least for me because i'm moving into a different stage of my life um and we all have those stages i'm just thinking about the actual visualization of that final scene yeah how it what's basically on display all i'll say is there's a person in the center of the room and he's looking at things around him that are just would blow your mind totally (laughs) out of context (laughs) uh it's just it's just a really great movie and it just speaks to me on a lot of levels so i was glad we got it on here i would actually love to revisit this movie i would actually let's do it let's watch all three i was gonna say i'd love to revisit all three of them actually as a matter of fact yeah i'm totally in so number 94 i think this is a film that you have not seen is this is one of the ones that I have not seen, so unfortunately I don't get to partake in this part of the conversation. Well, let me tell you why I love a movie called Sing Street. I played music in high school. I was in a band from the age of 17 and, and 21, and this movie does such a great job, even though it's not set in America, does such a great job actually representing what it's like to be young and in a garage band. So I saw myself... In a lot of this movie. It also happens to be coming of age. I'm a sucker for that kind of shit too. But also Sing Street's kind of come out. It's been sandwiched in uh, a few of these movies that have come out and claimed to be musicals. It came out in the same year as La La Land. And I think Sing Street is actually, it's not like, it's not literally a musical where people break out into the song. It's a movie about music. But I think that it did music better than the other musical that came out that year in La La Land. I don't think La La Land is that great of a musical, personally. But I don't necessarily disagree with that assessment. There, there's just a lot more that that movie does better. But uh, anyway, we might talk about that later. Uh, Sing Street just does such a great job. Not only does it have a great soundtrack, great music, but it has great characters. The reason why I saw myself, and what's so fun about watching this group, is that, uh, of course, there's a central love story. Uh, he's constantly trying to get the girl throughout, but also you get to see this band just on a whim, completely decide that they're changing sounds and identities. And that is so true when you're in a band, a a, a band might come out with a brand new record and they've completely changed their sound or they changed their fashion. And then the first thing that goes through your young mind is maybe I should imitate that. I don't know how many iterations of my band I went through, but they, they absolutely nailed that. 
Uh, Jack Rayner does a great job playing the lead character's older brother as well, and he's heavily involved in implementing and introducing all of this music to to his younger brother. There's also this aspect of uh, getting bullied at school. He's dealing with uh, he's of rebellious nature, and that's why he turns to music because he's not fitting in with his uh, strict uh, private school. It's just it's really I, I just like find it to be very. I gush over this thing. I just think it's so much fun to watch, and it has so many positive uh, things about it that uh, I, I have not since rewatched it. I've only seen it the one time. I, I can't wait to see it again. Yeah, this is one that everyone who talks to me about absolutely gushes about, and it's one I really look forward to finally seeing. Uh, maybe that's just one that we can sit down and watch just because I would love to see what everyone's talking about, especially you. it's opening a Broadway show this year. So crazy how far it's actually come. It's on Broadway? Oh, it's, I didn't it's know It's moving that. to Broadway, yeah. I didn't know that. So that's pretty, pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, our number 93 is a film that is really, really fun, at least in my opinion, and actually maybe <laughs> arguably one of the best remakes of all time. Yeah. And that is the Coen Brothers' True Grit. Yeah, so maybe I need to amend what I said about The World's End. Since True Grit is simply an older film, I guess that's been, that's the movie so far that it's been the longest since I've seen it. Because I, sure. I have not seen it since its theater run. Oh, wow, okay. So I actually revisited it right before we did the list, I think. Something like that. Yeah. So I, I've seen it recently, and the thing that still stands out to me now, and the thing that will continue to, is that this is one of those times that I think that finding filmmakers who appreciated the original and the source material but found a more interesting way to tell the story, even though it's so pretty much beat for beat the same movie, mm. these filmmakers, one, it's much more visually interesting. But I think they also just cast such a wide net of interesting actors. First, we were introduced to Haley Seinfeld through the film, which That's is right. a great thing. Jeff Bridges giving one of his all-time great performances – Matt Damon's great in this. Josh Brolin's great in this. Just a wildly great cast. But on top of that, they kind of found the humor in the story that I think the John Wayne one maybe doesn't necessarily have. And there's something about just the way that Rooster Cogburn talks in the film right. and the way he delivers the lines that is wildly funny while being in this like starkly different world that shouldn't be that funny. Right, And there, it's just... The balance of it all works for me, and it's a movie that I think about a lot and continue to ever since it came out. I always think about the acting. I remember the performances. I remember the chemistry that all the actors had together. Obviously, you remember Haley Steinfeld. She's gone on to just be absolutely brilliant, I think. Maybe totally. her, Maybe her career doesn't reflect that per se, but I think she's wicked talent, talented. And uh, I was just talking about how much I loved Edge of 17 the other day because I just think she's amazing in it. Um, so I I feel like I, I have not seen the original, but I feel like this is the kind of remake that like justifies remakes. Totally. If that I makes agree. sense. Like, yeah. Because I don't know that I have any – at the time, I don't know that I had any sort of understanding that it was a remake. I definitely – like just hadn't seen it up until that point. Maybe I did know that it was a remake at the time, but regardless, it's kind of like, Hey, maybe this is why we should remake movies. Even if it is beat for beat to kind of just bring some of this history back up. The fact that this was a representation, the kind of movie that was made to a certain point. So 
this true grit gave me a reason to see true grit, if that makes sense. Yep. Totally. Whereas I, I may have never seen it in the first place. And, uh, I, I don't know. I just think it's a great, uh, a great thing personally. And I'm glad you touched on the fact that it might be one of the best remakes ever made. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right on the idea of remakes like this really justify the need because it's kind of similar to like oceans 11. I don't think people would have seen oceans 11 with Frank Sinatra if the George Clooney one didn't exist, like our Definitely generation. Not. Definitely not. You know what I mean? Like, every once in a while, yeah, I'd seen stuff like that just because my parents were older and they'd introduced that stuff to me. But I am the minority on that. So movies like this, there's this weird misconception that because they remake things, people won't watch the originals. But I find that to be starkly different. Like, anytime a remake comes out, people I know get excited about revisiting the original also. Yeah, I think that's it's definitely true. I don't know if that's how the majority of people respond, but it definitely right. does happen. I mean, I'm guilty of that as well, and I think I'd be curious to know if there's some sort of statistic that could be measured. I don't know, like on iTunes or or Voodoo or something. Sure, yeah. I know sometimes they will show like the highest selling movies at the time, and usually, like if Spider Man Far From Home's coming out, then like Homecoming, yep. will be up there because people are watching that more. Uh, I guess that's more of like a sequel relationship, but I think it's it's true for remakes too. I, I see it from remakes from time to time because yeah. I mean, um, just to be like kind of open about it, we have Apple TVs throughout the house, and they're right. all logged into my account. So every once in a while, if you get into it and like you're looking at the market when there's remakes coming out, I notice that the originals will move up. And it's also, I think most notably, recently, that conversation came up when the first It was out. Yep. Like, that, uh, Tim, the Tim Curry, the TV series, whatever it is, the miniseries, I mean, that was the talk of the town, like, 25 fucking years later, or however long it's They been. even released it on Blu-ray, like, right in time for the remake, because right. they knew it would sell. Yeah. So, that's that's that. Yeah, that's that definitely happens. But anyway, uh, I wouldn't mind watching that again. I don't know if I'm rushing to it, but I don't dislike it at the same time. I rem- I definitely remember watching that back to back with uh, Black Swan, and and definitely preferring True Grit over Black Swan. That is not a bad thing. <laughs> have you seen our number ninety two film? I believe I have seen our number ninety two film. I couldn't remember if you had or not. Oh no, I have not yet. All right, well let me tell you why I love Little Women. There it is. This is a movie that, like, it makes no sense that I love this movie. I, especially going into it, I was like, oh my god, Greta Garwig, Saoirse Ronan, please give me a break. I pretty much only went because Chalamet, there was some heat off of The King. I thought he was great, even though the movie's just kind of, just average at best. And Florence Pugh, of course, for just absolutely showing out in 2019, and probably in 2020, as right now we're speaking, she was nominated for an Oscar. I- I will never forget when we saw the trailer for this in front of Joker when we went to our indie cinema. And I was like, so you're going to see that because of Florence Pugh. And you were like, not even she can get me into the theater. I I literally wanted to throw up seeing that. Like the costume period drama and the fact that I was like over Lady Bird. It was just like, it was never going to happen. But it just it turned out, I was like, hey, why not go on Christmas Day? I saw that in Uncut Gems. Ended up being a damn good double feature. Because Little Women, Greta Gerwig showed the fuck up. She really, really did. And I, I don't know if it's just because... Part of it's shock value, because I, I just didn't care for Lady Bird, really. Right. So uh, Greta Gerwig had to earn my respect. I know that's shitty to say, but you know what I mean. I'm kinda, I, I, look, it's I'm the same thing that I've said about the reason I haven't seen Midsommar yet. 
Fair. You know, we've had this conversation. It's just like me and Greta Gerwig just maybe aren't on the same page, and that's totally. Fine. But I think we are now because I respect the shit out of her, and I do think that she uh, should be best nominated for best director over uh, Todd Phillips uh, at the Oscars this year. But regardless of that, that's a whole other conversation you could check out on another podcast uh, on this podcast feed. Um, Little Women is is brilliant. Um, simply put. I, it won't take me long to talk about this. The performances are fantastic. I think that Greta Gerwig found a way to make the Ryan Stellings of the world, but also the fans of Little Women, interested in this. As I understand it, it's a it's a unique twist on this adaptation. I, I love the way, and you see it in the trailer, the way that we're sort of introduced into uh, this movie. It's her trying to pitch this book, and then the movie kind of unfolds uh, as the story that she's writing and uh, it goes back and forth between different timelines, and I thought that was done uh, cleverly. Confusing uh, for a little while, but I think that it, it's okay, just because I found that it, it was actually just a matter of the movie being uh, smarter than me and not waiting to hold my hand, and I I do want movies to do that. And uh, so, But also, I'm just an idiot. Like I've talked to people that just like weren't phased by that at all, but sometimes the actresses look the exact same, even though there's 10 years between the scenes. So that was really the the only thing that I was kind of uh, worried about. But at the end of the day, I, I was just kind of blown away by how much I admired this movie, uh, the story that it told. I thought it was super engaging. Breakout, maybe not breakout performances, because there's a lot of strong, already notable actors in here, but a great cast, no doubt. And uh, it, it was my number six movie of 2019, I believe. Yeah, I mean, you had it super high up on your list. It's one that... I'm really meaning to catch. It's just I've had a lot going on, so I just have not had the time. But I am very much looking forward to visiting it. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, words. What's that? Yeah, words. What's going on? But our number ninety-one is a movie that you and I were both very excited to make sure even landed on the list. Um, it's a movie that I know I love very much. I think it's a movie that you love very much as well. And that is David Fincher's Gone Girl. I think if we had done this list any other way, like if we were just like free balling it, like, hey, where would we put Gone Girl? I would probably would have easily put it in like top 30. Yeah, probably. But I think that, again, just because of how we did all this, it looks like it's not higher, but it's just one of those things. And and that's not even saying, I'm not even acting like that would be the most educated guess. Right. Just like without considering its placement in all the other movies that we had to talk about. Like I'd be like, oh my God, Gone Girl maybe my favorite Fincher movie. So right. I would assume uh, of the decade, I would assume that my favorite Fincher movie of the decade would be that high is really all that I meant. Yeah. No, totally. And this was part of not only, I would say part of the Ben Affleck Renaissance around that time, totally. but just one of the kind of all time great psychological thrillers that the decade saw, maybe the last two decades saw. Uh, It's a visually arresting film. It's a brilliantly written film. Acted amazingly. Carrie Coon is fantastic in this. But Rosamund Pike, who just doesn't get enough love. She's also in The World's End, uh, surprisingly enough. But, like, what a performance from her. And the relationship between her and Affleck is just so interesting. And the way that the movie kind of switch gears halfway through, you think you know what's going on, only for it to flip completely and go a totally different direction. It's just so interesting how it's made. It, it really is a shame that Rosamund Pike didn't really take off after this. Like, she right. she should 
get all of the credit for this, for this story, and for just the acting represented in this movie. I think she's easily the best thing about it. Uh, and, I mean, that movie just very much depends on her. But that doesn't mean that Affleck doesn't carry it as well. And also, like, subtly, it was Reese Witherspoon's coming out party as a producer. Yeah, uh, totally. This and uh, Wild, which did not make our list, which is funny. I don't even know if we ever talked about Wild. Did we? I think we in talked contention? about it, but I think it was one of those ones, like, we both were like, it's good. I don't right. think it was going to land in where we thought. But uh, But anyway, yeah, Ben Affleck, David Fincher... Rosamund Pike, and the story was captivating. It might be one of the best uh, book adaptations I've ever seen, though I have not read the book. Uh, that's because I do prefer, if I can, to be spoiled of a of a story uh, by the movie in a in a visual medium. So, as far as like that conversation goes, I haven't heard any complaints. It's the translation from the novel to the book. And uh, I just think it's cool. It doesn't really affect me either way, but I, I do respect that it does have that accolade as far as I'm concerned. Totally. Also, shout out to Tyler Perry for doing some of his best dramatic work. Legitimately, like, he's he's really good in this movie. You're, you're not wrong. And, I, I agree 100% just because I don't think that that is a, a hard mountain to climb. No, but it's a one that we need to, you know, talk about. And also, I, I know that this is a weird opinion because I've seen pushback on this. I actually really like Neil Patrick Harris in this movie, too. Yeah, I, I'm on the other side. Like, I don't think he's... I'm not really bothered by it. I just think it literally could have been anybody else. Sure. And it just kind of, like, took me out of it. That's fair. I just thought it was cool to see him playing so against type. Yeah. And I just think he's really quite good in it when he right. gets the chance to be. I also find that this movie is insanely rewatchable. Yep, definitely. Which, which is which is funny because it is a long movie. Um, yeah, it's like two and a half, right? Just yeah, about? something like that. It's a longer movie. I don't know. Is David Fincher a rewatchable director? Uh, is I would he say, known for that? Maybe I know some of his movies might be, but is he known for that? I would say for the most part, because I would say that there's really only one of his films off the top of my head, like thinking about it that's not insanely rewatchable. Okay. Um and that's probably Benjamin Button. That's, I mean I, I don't need to ever watch Dragon Tattoo again. Yeah, you and <laughs> I you and I differ on that one and that that's totally fair. But I'd say for the most part he's a pretty rewatchable director. Yeah. Um I think it's it's very rewatchable and it's something to be said and of course Fincher, you know, makes a lot of movies that have like big twists, but there's something to be said. I think um I don't know. What's your opinion? Does a movie with a big twist make, is it less rewatchable or is it more rewatchable because you can watch it from a different perspective every time? I think it kind of depends on the movie. Cause I mean, one of my all time favorite films is psycho. And obviously I know how that plays out every time I watch it similar with this, but yeah. I think that the movies are so good that the twists just make the movies better. Even when you know they're coming. Right. And then kind of like you said, now you get to watch it in a new light and then it's like, Oh, some of those pieces were there, and that's really, really cool. Right. I, I wish I could go back and talk to my, what's it, 2014 when this came out? 2014 yes. self, because I don't think I gave this movie enough credit. I mean, I enjoyed it, and I loved it a lot, and I reviewed it on my podcast at the time, but I don't I don't remember it being very high on my top ten list, and I'd love to go back and uh, slap myself in the face, because uh, Gone Girl is just, I think, firing on all cylinders. I love it. Yeah, definitely. What do we got next? It's a movie that I have not seen, so you're going to have to talk to me a little bit about it. Let's do this. Number 90 is Pixar's Moana. No, Disney's Moana. Not oh, Pixar. Oh, is it Disney animation? Yeah. No, Whatever. you're good, though. It's I get it. So Moana is one that we're going to talk about another one kind of closer on this list. But Moana is really interesting to me because for the first time, 
it really stuck out to me that they were trying to do something vastly different with their princess stories, which mm. was a good thing, I thought. But more than that, like, there's something about this film in the way that it uses water and nature and brings it to life as a character in and of itself right? on this journey that Moana is going on. And not to mention The Rock. Who doesn't love The Rock? And like, is this his best movie? Easily? It, it easily could be. Um, he plays Maui, you know, and he's fantastic in it. This mu- The music in this movie is phenomenal. Uh, some of my favorite. There's a song in this that is so heavily David Bowie inspired in the middle of the movie that I can't believe that Disney ran with it. What's the big mo- song that came from this movie? You're Welcome is no, probably the big. Are you thinking of the. She sings it. You're thinking of the one that she did with Lynn. I have to look because I can't remember it quite off the top of my head, and I know that that... Oh, that's all right. We don't have to dwell on that. But, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like Moana is, like, instantly Dwayne Johnson's best movie just because it's under the Disney banner and Disney animation and Pixar always crushes shit. It's probably How Far I'll Go, by the way, is the song you were thinking of. Yeah, probably. They sang it at the Oscars, I think, that year. But, um... Yeah, this is a movie that, like, I've seen on... I have a lot of friends that are parents. I've seen this on TVs because they're watching it with their kids. But I have this weird thing against animation. I'm not driven to go see animated movies, which Which we've talked about. Yeah, we talked about it on the honorable mentions, I think. So just up until this point, this is one of the two or three movies that I haven't seen in this list, unfortunately. But I know... I've only heard good things, and I'm sure that I'll actually watch this and actually love it. I just have this feeling that I will be taken by it. I think you are absolutely going to love this one. Yeah. Like, I knowing you and also knowing your love for music, this movie specifically in the, like, this decade of Disney, the music sticks out the most to me, other than I think maybe the next animated film we talk about on the list there's just some really really great songs especially like i said that the song shiny that's kind of in the middle of the film that's the very david bowie inspired one Mm. that sequence is fucking wild and i love that they went with it i also know for fact without having seen all of it i think it is absolutely the most beautiful disney Mm -hmm. pixar whatever animated movie i mean it is gorgeous the colors are just so vibrant and you know you you can say that about a lot of their movies i just think moana takes the cake it's so gorgeous you talked about the scene scenery the water and everything it's just it's breathtaking it is and that's weird to say because it's you know well it's it's water not (laughs) not to mention like it's such a larger than life type of film because obviously like maui being in it that you're dealing with like demigods and things like that so it opens up to having some really visually stunning sequences involving gods and nature and it's just a very fucking cool movie, and if you haven't seen it, I very much recommend it, and I think that's one we'll probably enjoy together. So, we are officially one-third through this list, guys. So, let me break it down for you. We've done 11 of the 33 so far. Let me read off and remind you what we talked about so far. Number 100 was John Carter. Then we have Furious 7, Attack the Block, Upgrade, Wonder Woman, The World's End, Sing Street, True Grit, Little Women... Gone Girl, and Moana. I think, is it your turn to introduce this one? Even that though Mo- it is. Okay. And this is one that, obviously, <laughs> I think you were more than happy not to introduce, uh, yeah. looking at you right now. Yeah, I don't really need to introduce this. Go no. It's this, all you. This is all me. This is a film that I know is 
kind of divisive right now in the film community, and that's okay. I just happen to be one of the people who absolutely adores it, and that is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. This is a film that I talked at great length about already, so I don't really have a lot that I want to really add. You can go back and listen to our review for it, where I really dive into how much I love it. I just think that this was a culmination of Scorsese and De Niro's time together as filmmaker and director. I think that they finally kind of put a closing chapter to their work in the gangster genre together. And there's just something really, really haunting and beautiful about the film. And I understand the people who don't love it. I know I completely understand where Ryan's coming from on his feelings for the film. So I don't want to take up more time for it because we have a lot of other films to get to, but it's a great film. Well, it's not that you can't take the time to talk about it. I mean, but I, we've I, also done it. <laughs> we we had an extensive review, but at the same time, I mean, I have I I have you know, I, I've thought a lot more about this. Okay, because of the awards, um, I I certainly do not love this movie. I really don't. I, I, I know think you don't. This and another movie that we'll eventually talk about. They have a couple of fatal flaws that just cannot get me there, and I'm way more high, especially if you saw my top 10 list of the year. You know I'm a lot higher on some other movies, and, and that's fine. But I was happy to concede and involve this in the list just because I know where people stand on this movie, and I get why they like it. I just think it's like... I think it's... I respect it a lot. Uh, I would have maybe done a few different things. But again, that's just like me kind of tinkering with something, and I, I can't always get my way, and... Martin Scorsese, he's obviously a brilliant director, but this is just one of those movies that I just don't uh, register with. Totally. I touch myself. But uh, I think that this is like an interesting milestone. Kind of going back to what we said about number 100 with John Carter and how it is kind of the first peek into the list. I think the placement of the Irishman at 89 is going to be one of those like make it or break it moments for our listeners. Totally. Because now it's like, People love the Irishman, man. So now it's all about what's better than the Irishman. But then there's the people who hate the Irishman and they can't believe that it made our top 100. That's true. So then That's they're true. like, "What is this?" But but I'm one of those people, right? Totally. And so I'll be the proxy and say, "I I get it." Even though it, it is not 89 because of me, but I was perfectly fine with it being here. Yeah, totally. And I appreciate you letting me get it on the list. Well, it's funny because it neighbors a movie that I think it, it has a few similarities to it. Maybe, maybe not as many as I originally thought. I, I was I was taken by their placement. Maybe there's better examples of this elsewhere. But number eighty eight is a movie that I fought for. I think you enjoy it quite a bit too. I do. That is Derek San Francis, the place. Beyond the Pines. I'm so glad that this movie made the list in the end, man. This is one of those weird movies where, like, I, I saw it. I remember where I was, when I watched it, how I felt watching it. I I literally have no gauge whatsoever as to how the film community views this movie. This is just, like, something that, like, and I, I love that you love it, but it's really only something that I'm aware that I like, mm -hmm. and, and that's it. <laughs> I, I think it's got a pretty decent following i want to say in the film community i mean look you have to look at it as a film that has bradley cooper it's a film that's got ryan gosling eva mendez like pretty and this was kind of the coming out party for um dane dehan dane dehan and what's not to like about that there's yeah. such great performances with such a fascinating 
kind of story device in the way that it plays out. I was going to say, yeah, let's leave that out. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just kind of saying, like, in general. That also absolutely affects my enjoyment. Like, yes. Yeah. I, I think, and I think that's where there's some kind of divide overall on how you view the film. Mm. It's one that I find myself revisiting more frequently nowadays than I thought I ever would, but I it just speaks to me on a very human level. I I agree 100%. I've seen this movie, I think, twice since it came out in 2013, I believe. And I just think that, like, this is an example of, like, this is why movies are made. Th- totally. This is what we can do with movies. The fact that it's... Um, there's one key aspect. I don't know if I want to say that word or not. It takes place over a long period of time is, totally. is what I'll say. And it's kind of like this super small epic in a weird way. Uh, and that's all I want to say, unless you have, no. just in case you haven't seen the movie. Yeah, I don't want to say more because it's kind of similar to what we were talking about with Attack the Block. There's some films that I don't necessarily want to spoil. Right. Um, just because I think that viewing them for the first time is maybe the best. It's unfortunate, too, because I don't think San France has really popped off since then. No. He did, uh, what was that movie? Not The Lighthouse. Uh, uh, Under the Silver Lake? Was did that he him? Do Under the Silver no, Lake? No, am I thinking? I'm thinking I'm of talking the about person. the Alicia Vikander and Fassbender movie. That was oh, like Light oh, Between Oceans? The Light Between Oceans. Yes, he did do that. And that didn't really pop off. No. Has he done anything else since? Maybe not. Let me Why look. did I think he was the one who did? That was a weird pull. But no, he he definitely did that. Blue one. Valentine, which uh, I'll go on and spoil, is not on our list, even though it came out in 2010. Yeah, I mean, I'm that movie is good. I know this much is true, which is a TV series that he's apparently doing this year. So he has not done any anything since The Light Between Oceans, and that was in 2016. So um, I, I wish he popped off in a weird way. I do too. I know it's strange, just because I, I've I've seen only one movie of his, I think, up until this point. I'm but. sure he'll come back around. I think that part of the problem is that Light Between Oceans didn't really take off, and that's really also like the last Touchstone film that I can remember being in theaters, so that's a weird little thing, too. But moving on from this is our number 87. I, have you seen our 87? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay, I just wanted to make sure. And number 87 is another animated Disney film, another film that I really, really loved that I was hoping we could get on the list, and that is Tangled. I, I'm happy to put this on the list, because yeah. I think Tangled is is phenomenal. I think the fun debate that we've had, I don't know if Film Twitter has it or whatever, but I love comparing Tangled to Frozen. Yes. And I love saying that Tangled is way better than Frozen. Um, and I'm going to say something right now, just to make everyone real happy. Frozen? Or not happy, I guess. Frozen? Not on this list. (laughs) No, it is not. (laughs) So, Tangled is a movie that was right at the cusp of the beginning of the decade. It was a major push forward for Disney with the CGI animation. I wasn't really sure what to make with this kind of new direction that the company was going in. Because I really loved Princess and the Frog. And it ended up being their last hand-drawn animated film. And I wasn't sold on this being the direction for the company. I felt like leaving hand-drawn behind was a mistake, but what they managed to do was get the hand-drawn nature Mm. in a CGI form and make it just as interesting, just as fun, and you could do more with it. Did this come out the same year? It definitely came out at the same time, but did this come out the same year as 
Princess and the Frog? Okay, so no, yeah. it was like the year be- after. It was the year after Princess yes. and the Frog. So that's interesting that you make that point too, because they're kind of like back to back. And wasn't Princess and the Frog the last hand drawn? Yeah, that's is that what yeah. you were speaking. That to? was that what transition? I was speaking to. Okay, yeah. So that that transition was like super fresh then. Yeah, yeah. So I was blown away what they were able to do, and on top of that, these are some of the best Disney characters that they've had on film, and that's because. We have two of the most charismatic leads in Mandy Moore and Zachary Levi. That's right. I have a soft spot for Mandy Moore. I I have no idea why. I think it goes back to... A Walk to Remember? You're a secret fan? No. uh, Entourage, (laughs) when uh, she broke Vinny Chase's heart on the set of Aquaman. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I've always just enjoyed Mandy Moore, even though I don't care about the things that she's in. Maybe I just find her incredibly charming. But Mandy Moore obviously crushes it in this movie, and Zachary Levi also as well. It's just some of the, I think, the most recent best music in a Disney film period. When we talk about best Disney music, uh, we we fondly remember like the the 90s and, and beyond. Right. But I think contemporary Disney, it doesn't get better than Rapun- or Rapunzel, Tangled. No, definitely not. I mean, I See the Light, obviously, is the standout song from that film, in my opinion. But you look yes. at some of the others, like Mother Knows Best is really, really great. Um, when Will My Life Begin is really wonderful. Like, There's just some really great music in it and i also think that it's very adventurous and again speaks to the power of what we were kind of talking about with moana also is that they're kind of more adventurous and that's a good thing too and we really give these princesses more to do if you will and i think that that's a very good thing and zachary levi is fucking amazing in this movie absolutely hilarious definitely shout out tangled shout out tangled Number 86 is the movie that blew me away when I saw it. This might be one of my favorite Oscar movies of the decade, easily. Totally. It is Alexander Payne's The Descendants. This movie, man, I rent, I was at Blockbuster, rented it, kind of didn't know anything about it, honestly. Just kind of caught my eye because it was uh, George Clooney. And I was fucking blown away by this movie. I found it to be so damn affecting. I th- it's maybe my favorite Clooney performance outside of uh, Ocean's Eleven. I, I just love this movie to pieces. I found it to be so affecting. And I think what probably took me back the most was Shailene Woodley. Dude, this is where she really popped off for me. I know that a lot of people liked her on, was like Secret of an American Teenager or something. Secret, Secret Life of American yeah. Teenager. Which is funny because I remember uh, I, I was in high school when this, uh, or I was... Hold on. I was in high school when that show was happening. So I had a lot of friends that had seen it, mm-hmm. but I, I was out of high school when this movie came out. So the people that knew Shailene for that were kind of like, well, that was an ABC family show. And like, I remember some people like busting my chops for liking her from this movie saying she's not even a good actress based on what they had seen prior to that. I, I had none of that context, but what you said, the fact that this was sort of her coming out party I, I was blown away by her, mm-hmm. I, and uh, I, I again, I thought she was extremely effective and fantastic. I just thought there was something so real about her. Well, and that's everyone in the movie. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. Like, true. this is easily my favorite Alexander Payne film. Like, I, yeah. I don't think it comes close. Uh, I would Clooney agree is, with that. Yeah, yeah, Clooney is incredible in it because he's George Clooney. But there's something so human about this because we all know how George Clooney is. Like, he's a he could do anything. That dude could buy an island, but he makes 
being like an everyday person who finds out his wife was cheating on him when she's dead. And like, how do you deal with that? Right. And like, it's just such a human film and he's so good in it. Matthew Lillard is really great in this (laughs) too. Like people forget he is, he was the lover. Right. And he is so good in this. There's just something really human about the story. It's got a lot of really great humor too. It's just kind of quirky and different. Like shout out to uh, Judy Greer as well just playing the wife because yeah. that's that's what she does in the 2010s apparently, unfortunately. <laughs> I love Judy Greer, so that's really unfortunate. Um what a really great film. I've only seen it the one time when I saw it in theaters. I haven't yeah. gotten it I haven't revisited it. Oh, really? And I need to because okay. it's one of those films that just it really spoke to me and has stayed with me. Yeah. And I mean, I, there's sequences from that movie that I can still see in my head. That's how good it is. Him running down the street in the flip flops panic with the flip flops. Yep. yep. That's one that comes to mind. The, for the sure. head poking over the, uh, what is it? Like shrubbery essentially. Yeah. yeah like yep, all of that stuff. Uh, Shailene jumping into the pool and screaming underwater. Yep. I remember that very much. Yeah. Just a great movie, man. Like everything about it, is fantastic. It's you... weird because it's a downer. I've seen this movie like several times. <laughs> not gonna lie. No, I mean it, it is a downer, but it's also not like it's also very life affirming. Yeah. As weird as that sounds, like it's also about moving on and like where do you go next? Mm. And again, as someone who's in a weird position for that in his life, like it's very it speaks to me. <laughs> mm, yeah, I get but, it. Yeah, it's just a really great film. This next film is one that I'm very glad made the list. One that. I am a huge fan of. I think you like this movie too? Have I told you about my experience with this movie? No, I don't think so. All right, so I saw Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, boy. Opening weekend in theaters. I walked out of that movie and just had zero clue how I felt about it. For three years after this movie, after seeing this movie, I still... Never solidified if I absolutely love the shit out of this movie, okay, or despise this totally. movie. And it was three years because I remember talking about it, and it was this inside joke because I went with a friends group, and it was this inside joke that I never figured out how I felt about this movie. Whenever it came up in conversation, I couldn't add to it because I couldn't decide if I loved it or hate it. And I also kept revisiting that take on Time Hop, so I, I was continuously reminded that this was a thing. Finally. There was a day when I that this movie popped up in my head and I declared that I think this movie is brilliant. Yes, and that is the way that it should be looked at. This is one of the best meta horror comedies ever. I mean, that's a very small list, but mm-hmm. it is absolutely true. But not only that, like for a movie that sat on the shelf so long because of like a weird rights thing, yeah, there's every once in a while movies like that get stuck in a limbo, and that was two for Chris Hemsworth, by the way, with uh, Red Dawn, correct. So this was filmed uh, before Thor, right? Correct. So was Red Dawn, and they yeah. were released after, and they really marketed those movies as Chris right. Hemsworth films, right? When in actuality, they're... instead of Josh Peck films, yeah, correct. So. <laughs> The very first time I saw this movie, I was really into it. I had no idea what to expect from it, really. And I remember the opening and just how, like, fucking bizarre it was that it was like a workplace comedy. And I was like, what is this? And then it becomes the movie you think it's going to be. And then it becomes 
not at all the movie you think it's going to be. Yeah. And that's the brilliance of this film. This is another one I don't really want to spoil. It's all about the experience. Mm. But my God, that third act is one of my favorite horror anythings ever. There's a sequence, and I believe you will know exactly the sequence I am implying to, that is so batshit crazy and so insane that I could not believe it was happening. Yeah, I think part of the reason why I really wrestle with this movie is I just don't respond to Joss Whedon. I'm I'm just not really a fan of his, and I know he didn't direct it, but he wrote it. Uh, I, I just, that aspect of the movie, I don't think is just my, it's not my favorite thing. Sure, that's fair. But, um... It's really just kind of about the humor of it all, and and but anyway, regardless of that, I, I think the reason why I decided that I truly love this movie is that I don't know, like, kind of going back to what I said about Place Beyond the Pines. This is like what movies are fucking about in a way. Like, I don't know how you would pull this off in any other medium. What eventually happens in this movie, right? And the fact that it was so much fun and just absolutely went for it, and it is one hundred percent. A mystery box of a movie, which 100%. is which is the thing that I think about, and, and I think that's what really pushed me over the ledge. Just looking at the fucking movie poster, I was gonna say the the movie poster is literally a mystery box. It's, it's a yeah, it's a house, it's a box, and um, I just think that it's a great representation of that. And more than anything, I wish more movies were like this uh, to this day. And uh, I don't know that they are, but I wish they were. No, th- this is a subgenre that's. Incredibly small. Meta horror comedy does not happen a lot. Shaun of the Dead fits into this. Um, maybe arguably Army of Darkness, but it's a small window. Yeah. I wish that there was more. Um, even meta horror, just kind of in general, I wish there was more. I agree 100%. I, I have not revisited this movie in a while, so I, w- I cannot wait to finally sit down and rewatch it. There's a lot of those, obviously, on here. I'm going to say that a lot, but Cabin in the Woods. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It's a, definitely it's a ton of fun and batshit insane. Number eighty four is, I think, like to some degree, like low key people's favorite genre movie of uh, twenty eight. It was twenty eighteen, right? Yes, yeah, twenty eighteen. Um, I feel like this is a movie that Tarantino would just randomly put in his top five of that year. I think he had it. In Did this, he really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay, well, perfect uh, because it's not really going to be recognized in any other list. That is. Overlord. Overlord. I freaking love this movie. Is awesome. My review of that film, not a lot of movies get this review. Overlord balls the fuck out, dude. It really does. From the get-go, that opening sequence, uh, jumping out of the plane, you're in it. And I I just think that not only it's incredibly fun, but I I was actually kind of just blown away by how well constructed and how, how well directed it was julian avery right it yes was, it was the first time that i had uh discovered him and known his name and uh, what is he working julius on now? avery excuse julius me. avery what did he get signed on to right before or right after this that was super exciting do you remember uh flash gordon yes correct that right. was crazy and it got me even more hyped for sure i I, I love every aspect of this movie especially the cast shout out to uh uh, fucking, uh, oh, what's it? Greyjoy. Fuck. Uh, Euron Greyjoy, Palu, Aspic playing the villain. 
Uh, we got Yovana Depo, of course, who is becoming one of my favorite actors. Shout out to uh, Leftovers and Watchmen alum and yep, When They yep, See yep. Us alum. Uh, Yovana Depo is awesome, awesome, awesome. This was also the first time I was... Uh, it wasn't the first time I'd seen Wyatt Russell, but it was the first time I was like, oh, Wyatt Russell. And it was all inside this little compact, cool fucking like genre horror action thriller. And I just thought that it, it kind of surprised me how good I thought it was. I thought it was sequenced so well, and it was just an absolute ton of fun. And it doesn't gear, get nearly enough love. It's the best Castlevania film that will ever be made. Um, I'm sticking with that. Mm, that's like for sure. One of the best marketing campaigns of 2018 by far. I felt like it was just so cool. And I think the thing that I like the most, and it's the thing that I hear a lot of people complain about. And I think this is why I appreciate it. It's a war film. First and foremost, that happens to have monsters. That's uh something our buddy, Kevin Marks talks about how he wished that it was more of a zombie movie. Right. And for me, I like that that's how it is because it definitely reminds me of like the grindhouse type stuff that Tarantino is very gravitational towards that he loves, you know, as a filmmaker, there's something about it that's just so arresting that you're just so drawn into it and it works so well. The cast is excellent. Wyatt Russell, again, who you just brought up first time I really took notice of him was probably Jump Street because he's in the second one. Yeah. 22. Um, but in this, he showed that he could also be a great leading man. Right. Like, he's very much part of the face of the film, and I like him quite a bit. And this is why I'm excited for him in, uh, what, Falcon and Winter Soldier? Yep. Right? Yep. I'm very excited about that. I mean, and I love Everybody Wants Some. I think he's very great in that. So, he's just a very good actor. This is a great World War II film. It's a great zombie film. Like, everything about it just works. I I disagree with what people like Kevin say, just because like I, I, I could easily be that person who feels that exact same way, but I feel like it's discounting everything else that it does. Well, like totally, if nothing else works, if I didn't like the characters, if I didn't think the action and the pacing and everything was really, really good, uh, then I would go to, Oh, you should have just had more zombies to sort of fill that void. But that movie kept me engaged the entire time with or without the zombies. And then it kind of just became, Kind of like what we said about Cabin in the Woods, this sort of like batshit mystery box kind of thing that uh, I was just in for at that point because the movie convinced me otherwise that like, hey, I'm I'm with these characters no matter what. I remember when we all thought it was going to be a Cloverfield film too. Like it definitely felt like that it was going that direction. so glad it wasn't. Me too. I I 100% was going to say the same thing. So I'm glad it was not. So our number 83 is a film that I know is about to break a bunch of our listeners because of where it's placed. So just remember, it's just a number. It made the list. It doesn't matter where it's placed. And that is George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. This is a movie that took us all by storm when it hit theaters. Um, we hadn't had a Mad Max film in a very long time, so for it to finally come back as like this action stunt spectacular on the big screen that we really hadn't seen the likes of maybe ever in this way with cars and stuff was pretty wild, and what a great experience. Uh, Everything about this movie is just wildly entertaining with a great lead performance, actually from Charlize Theron, less from Tom Hardy. Did you say Charlize Theron? Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. All right, well, you know, 
<laughs> it sounded like you said Charlie's. It's Charlie's throne. Charlie's throne. Sounded like you said Charlie's throne. No, <laughs> we're good. So, anyway, George Miller in his seventies managed to make a film that feels like a twenty. 20- four-year-old on acid and speed managed to make this movie is absolutely batshit crazy in the best way uh great use of using cinematography and score to tell the story over like acting the whole time because there's a lot happening where you never slow down um it's almost like one really long car chase in a really cool way and i really like that about it this is just a wildly entertaining film from beginning to end this movie fascinates me for a lot of reasons. The The build-up to it, I, I had a very limited gauge reading the room as far as like, hey, what might hit or what might not. And kind of like what I said about Attack the Block. Slash film, and there were a couple of other uh, sites uh, and blogs that were like all about this movie uh, going into, what, 2015 when it came out? Yes. Yeah, 2015. Going into that year, it was, uh, uh, what's him call it? I can't remember his name. He worked for Slash Film. He doesn't anymore. Um, uh, Jermaine Lucier. Jermaine Lucier. Yeah, it was like his top 10 most anticipated movie. And I remember just being like, what? Like, just based on the trailer, it looked like a Fast and Furious to me. So, it, a movie to me. So, I was just kind of like, okay, why is that? Like, I, I didn't understand the impact of George Miller coming back and making a sequel. I had no understanding of that. So, it was just like the most whatever thing. Right. So, I went in uh, hoping that I would enjoy it. And I remember coming out. And, like, my cousin took my aunt, and, like, she just, like, did not get it, did not like it at all. And I remember a couple of friends of mine coming out and, and disliking it. And I remember one friend specifically saying to me, I, I did not like that movie. There was literally no plot. And I remember thinking to myself, that movie is entirely plot. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, it's 100% it, entirely it's, plot. It's the exact opposite uh, of what she had said. And I think what she was kind of getting to is that she just kind of felt like maybe she just didn't care about what was happening. I think is maybe what she meant by and it. And I but, can see that, I guess. I know. mean, the, the the reason why is that th- there's very limited character here. And I think that's exactly why we were so taken by Furiosa. It's just because we, we just thought she was so cool. That's really all that it is, right? We talked a lot about Furiosa when we reviewed Terminator Dark Fate. Yes, we did. Because... Uh, Mackenzie Davis was very reminiscent uh, of that. And so it's like, I think Furiosa is obviously just such a cool addition to that universe and great for that movie. Totally. Um, great female action star for sure. But I don't know that there's, other than the the chaotic, frenetic nature of that movie, the, the visuals and the stunt work, there's very there's not a whole lot for casual audiences to get in on in that way. Definitely like, not. I think this is like a film lover's favorite movie, but I don't know if it's like the most accepting for general audiences. So It's like the most niche action film ever made on a budget of like $150 million. That's, yes. Uh, like probably. 100%. I, so I know that a lot of people love this movie. I think, I don't know that we're always entirely disciplined when like actually examining what this movie is doing, like it, it, it did something that no movie had done before and definitely hasn't been done prior. But at the same time, it's just like, it doesn't have, have it all in my sure. opinion. Um, like the fact that I didn't really take anything away from, from max, uh, from, I mean, Tom Hardy's good and he's magnetic, but I don't know. I've never really like been, 
absolutely in love with any of his movies because of him. Totally. Um, there's just like, it's very, a lot of it is cosmetic and technical. Mm-hmm. So I just don't know that it has enough to push it even further. So I think I'm actually like, that's fine if people want to get upset with this, but I think that as a whole, the community probably needs to rein it back and become a little bit more disciplined when discussing this movie. Well, it's funny because I've also talked about that I think that part of the reason that people love this movie is some of the stuff that they also flacked Tron Legacy for. I feel like if Legacy had come out after, it probably would have actually been as well-received as this movie was because it did a lot of the same things with be like with its visuals and with its music and the way that it told its story. I still think that it still has its own problems, but I think it's very similar in that thematic way. I, I see, I see your comparisons, but I don't think it, you haven't changed my mind on Tron Legacy being more successful, but I understand those comparisons. Yeah. I, again, it kind of like this Tron Legacy, also a niche blockbuster so i mean just very kind of funny that they're very similar in that regard but yeah i i can see where you're also coming from about the idea of reining in the way we talk about it i mean i would argue that the other mad max films are better story-wise than this one is by quite a bit but the story is go here no no turn back (laughs) right whereas i think we actually get more out of the ones with Mel Gibson. Sure. Um, Road Warrior is actually still my favorite of the franchise by quite a bit, Yeah, but I really do love this movie. Yeah, it, it's really good, beautiful to look at, very rewatchable, and uh, yeah, it, it definitely deserved to be on our list. Absolutely. Definitely. This is a movie that you and I went back and forth on, and it's not that I don't love this movie. I, like, this is more of an example that I don't know it needs to be this high, but... I do like this movie. I've seen it multiple times. That is Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. Yeah, boy. And I think this was really me pushing for this movie. Um, Simply because, one, I adore Edgar Wright. And more than that, I think that he did something so different with this film that he hadn't done with his career so far. And not only that, I think this is easily one of the best heist films that we've seen this decade. But it's just so kind of crazy magnetic. Its use of music is incredible. I really like Ansel Elgort in the role as Baby. Um, he just – there's something about him. He's so likable. Plus, you've got Jamie Foxx, John Hamm, Isaiah Gonzalez. Uh, Aiza. Aiza. Yeah, thank it, you. It, you say it like her vowels in her name are reversed. Got it. So even though it's E-I-Z, it's Aiza. It's got it. backwards. It's thank weird. you. I appreciate that. Um <laughs> The now-defunct Kevin Spacey, of course, um, <laughs> and Flea, which always right. puts a Shout smile out. on my face. That's right. Shout-out Flea because I'm a big Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. But yeah. there's something about this film that is so interesting to me, and that's that, in a way, the movie he was trying to make is like a, mytholo- a myth- mythologically fantasy adventure film in a contemporary age. Like, Baby is the Knight trying to save the princess – and, like, there's just kind of interesting parallels to that. Yeah. But it's also done like a punk rock opera. And that's right. what I like about it. It's just such a different frenetic energy that I had never quite seen in that way. And Wright really did something special and cool to it that I am still drawn to to this day. I think it is top three best car movies of the decade. Uh, Mad Max probably being one of them and it's its neighbor on the list and sure. another one 
being somewhere else on this list. Off the top of my head, I think it might be top three of the decade. I think that the reason why I'm just like not crazy about every single little thing is I'm just not really a big fan of Ansel Elgort. Uh, I, I just don't. I'm not attracted to him totally in that way. Fair. And same with Lily James. And that that pisses people off a little bit. I just was not taken by her. I, I hope to. I don't always have to. But I hope to sort of fall in love with those characters the way that our main character does. Sure. And uh, I just didn't really get there. I just, I don't know. I, Lily James. I respect it, man. I, I, I have it. I have no, like investment in her as an actress so I, I just wasn't really it's weird to love a movie but just kind of be like indifferent about the leads which i don't i don't say that about a lot of movies at least to my to my knowledge but that's just right. one of the things that like i i love john ham and isaac gonzalez that's when actually i think oh, i've, I've and, seen her from dust till dawn but and john bernthal bernthal yeah he's freaking great in and, this I, I think that's that's what I love the most was sort of the uh, all of the other characters and yeah. how the movie built upon itself. I mean, there were some really arresting scenes uh, towards the end of the movie that had nothing to do with cars. Uh, one particularly was very scary in uh, the diner that they were in. That sequence is still nerve wracking. Yeah. Um, I rewatched this recently because my parents had actually never seen it, and I showed it to them, and they were they were totally like, wow, we've never even heard of this and we love this movie. But I forgot how tense that sequence is, man. Like, it's so good. Um, That foot chase towards the end of the movie is right. great. And <clears throat> that's kind of a the thing about this whole movie is that I think Edgar Wright took a lot of the best stuff that he's done, period, with his career and found a new way to kind of twist it. And I think he just made a really cool movie. And Atlanta looks cool in it, too. Yeah. I, and there's like iconic parts to it too, like the cost, like our buddy Ralph dressed up as baby right. for Halloween, which is kind of just you're wearing a jacket. But yeah, also, Ralph, get better at Halloween costumes. There's there's uh, some interesting iconography in this movie too that I think is very striking to me. Like the music aspect of the movie is important to that character, and I appreciate yep. it. But like I didn't think it really did anything for the movie, like because I just okay. wasn't really taken by the soundtrack. Because I immediately went to say like Guardians of the Galaxy, and music is just way more impressive. That's in that totally kind of movie. fair. I, I felt like like I, I feel like that's just worth mentioning because that was one of the things about Baby Driver was like mm -hmm. the music and what it meant to that character. And I just wasn't that captivated by it, honestly. Totally. The selection of the songs, things like that. So the, just, those are minor gripes. I'm acting like this is the worst film in the movie. This might be the most critical I've been on the entire list, uh, but that's really not the case. I've seen it multiple times. I think, I think I was so like put off by it the first time because it wasn't a great theater experience. I was just in a very uh, low quality theater, mm -hmm. so I wasn't like steeped into it the way you want to be steeped into a movie when you're Definitely. watching in a theater. I felt very disconnected the entire time. It didn't feel like I was watching something for the first time, unfortunately. So th that has a little bit to do with it, I think. I could see that. I mean, there's always something about having a bad theater experience that can ruin the overall <clears throat> experience of how you feel about something. Definitely. I'd be interested to see if you changed that opinion if we revisited it. I mean, I've seen it multiple times. Since okay. okay. Yeah, I've, I've probably seen it like four times total. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That, even better. See, yeah. I know. That, that's what makes it sound silly because I was being critical and I'm like, yeah, I've, I've seen this movie way more than Sing Street, you know? Sure. But now moving into our number 81, uh, this is a movie that you and I both knew that we wanted to have it on here. It's a movie that I thought went wildly overlooked in a way that, I mean, it ended up making money in the end, but the fact that it also had arguably 
a title that was a disservice to the movie in the end was part of the problem. But this is a movie that I adore. It's one of the best sci-fi films easily of the decade. And I'm going to call it by its proper name, which is Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. You actually went the complete opposite direction. I, I don't know if we've ever talked about this movie because you just did the most like film Twitter thing that I've been anti since this movie came out. Maybe one of my most popular... I'm so happy we're talking about this. This is great. One of my most popular film opinions, one of my hottest takes, things that I've just been all about. I've mentioned it on... Uh, it's been seasoned throughout so many podcasts since this came out in 2014 that... <laughs> people picking apart that title is literally a bunch of people that just don't know how to like figure out why this movie went wrong because edge of tomorrow is like a great title makes absolute sense for this movie. And it, it's just this weird thing that no other movie needs to change its title based on its lack of success. But for whatever reason, this came became the movie that was all about it had the wrong title. And it's just like, it's just not that, in my opinion. I, I understand where you're coming from. I think part of it is also the fact that WB legitimately changed the title so many times. And then by the time they put it out on home video, they decided to change it again. Like, it's, I've never seen anything quite like that. You want to know what the worst title for this movie is? What? The original title of the oh, source material. All You Need Is Kill. All You Need Is Kill. Yeah. Is it badass? Sure. Would it be a terrible name for a movie like this? Yes, absolutely. I could see like a Nicholas Winding Refn movie being called All You Need Is Kill, but <laughs> not But like one. a Tom Cruise sci-fi film? Yeah. No, absolutely. Not, yeah. It also just kind of like... It doesn't sell me the premise as much as Edge of Tomorrow does. Like, and Edge, here's the thing. Edge, Edge of, of Tomorrow, Tomorrow makes sense. Edge of Tomorrow makes sense, but it also is being accompanied by a trailer, which right. sells you on the premise. So it's like, it, imagine watching that trailer and just seeing all you need is kill popping up. You'd be like, what? It'd be so confusing. And then you'd have somebody be like, well, it's based on, yeah, well, maybe that's not good enough because maybe it's a bad title. <laughs> No, definitely, but outside of that, this outside movie of all that bullshit, fucking rocks so yeah. hard. Like, I love this movie to pieces. Um, this is arguably one of the most entertaining Tom Cruise films ever because he knew that he never died in his movies, so he had the most fun that he could finding different ways to kill himself throughout it. I mean, this is basically Groundhog's Day in science fiction form, and I love everything about that. I I love this movie very much. Kind of going back to what I said about Gone Girl. If I could just put this anywhere, it might be in my top 25, maybe top sure. 20. Um, I'm, I'm a massive fan of Tom Cruise, obviously. I'm a massive fan of Tom Cruise when he plays uh, in, in genre films. And I think that the 2010s is maybe his best decade, honestly, at least personally. It's, it's very close, to be completely honest. I mean, the, I mean, I think you can make the case that it is just purely based on the fact that he's stuck around. Sure. Like, if he had just petered off, we'd be like, oh, the 80s or the 90s. But no, it's like, maybe it is the 2010s. I mean, he has made some amazing choices overall the last two decades, I would say. Yeah. Um, to keep himself really going strong. But I think there's something to be said about the 2010s in particular. Yeah. In my, in my humble opinion. But there's just something about this film that just is... It grabs you, man. Everything about it. Well, there's also just something to be said about... I think I heard you talk about this uh, 
I think we discussed it on honorable mentions, or maybe it was just when we were arguing. But the fact that like Tom, oh, it was when we were talking about Jack Reacher. Yeah, the fact that Tom keeps me excited when he keeps his close friends around, and Doug Liman, him, he, him, and. Uh, uh, Doug collaborated on another one of my favorite movies of the 2010s, especially that Tom Cruise is in. I can't remember if it's on the list. Is it on the list? I don't know. I don't know either. I'll, I'll save it. You guys can figure it out. Uh, but also the fact that uh, McQuarrie also was involved in the script. I, I just uh, love the company that Tom Cruise keeps. Yeah, for sure. And they make him better and he makes them better, I think, uh, because he, he himself is a fantastic filmmaker. I think that, like, just... I don't know, man. This might be one of the best sci-fi movies ever. And Blunt is amazing in it. Like she's she such is. a great co-lead with him. She is the better, like Fury Rosa. Fur- I was trying to say Furiosa, but came out Fury Road. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> she is the better Fury Rosa. Fur- yes, fu- you guys know what I'm saying. <laughs> Furiosa. Um, that's what I get for making fun of PJ for mispronouncing <laughs> things. Whatever that name is, she's the better version of that. Um, and I just love her character so much. In her, this. she had back to back roles. This and another movie that it was the year before this as well. When I was like, "Oh my god, Emily Blunt might be one of my favorite actresses." Like, yeah. thank you, Tom Cruise, for displaying. Even though, hey, Tom Cruise loves to display fine ass young women in his movies, but hey, I'm here for it. Emily Blunt's my favorite because she just has the most. Uh, I don't know. She's probably just the most talented. And uh, anyway, I love every aspect of this movie. And I just want to shout out um, the late, great Bill Paxton, who is so fucking wonderful in this movie. He plays a character from Kentucky in this movie. Yeah, and there's just something about the way he plays that character that is just so on brand for him. And he shines, man. Like, that character sticks out as one of my favorite, like, supporting sci-fi characters. And every time he opens his mouth, it's just funny. I fucking miss that guy so much, dude. Bill Paxton was a legend. I also remember talking about this when I reviewed it back in the day. One of my favorite things coming out of that movie is that I couldn't quite comprehend the design of the aliens because they have that very... it kind of rem- Venom has since kind of built upon this visually, I think, the, the way that they designed that character, mm-hmm. uh, or the, the physicality of them. But I remember seeing those aliens for the first time in the theater and just like not really understanding what I was looking at because their movements... They're kind of like wavy noodles, but mm-hmm. they also like jump in weird ways. Like I remember just being like, "This is what it would be like." I think to see aliens for the first time, and they also had a weird blue glow that reminded me of Tack the Block, right? Which was interesting. Like, yeah, just thought that was a very yeah, I could see that fun thing. I I remember like they were scary because they weren't they weren't predictable because their anatomy was unique, and I I just thought that creature design was so so great too. So anyway, shout out Edge of Tomorrow. It it, it balls the fuck out. Um, number 80 is a movie that I had not seen, uh, when we put it on the list, but I have since watched it and that is easy a yeah, boy. So how did we get here? This was a movie that I had not seen. I knew that it it was definitely notable when it comes to comedies and coming of age comedies and the launching pad of, of Emma Stone. But why? why is EZA on this list? I think a lot of it kind of came down to one was what you just talked about was you hadn't seen it. We had talked a lot about there wasn't a ton of comedies that we had on the list that mm. were going to even make the list once we were putting this together. And there was something to be said about the launching pad of someone like Emma Stone coming out the gate. And 
there's something about this movie that really spoke to the entire audience when it came out. Like it was a very big deal when it opened. It's continued to be a big deal. And in a lot of ways, I think it's because we miss John Hughes and this was maybe closest, one of the closest things we've had to a John Hughes film since John Hughes in a way. So there's something really interesting about the film. Plus it's got a really interesting supporting cast. It does. Like you look at Lisa Kudrow's in this movie, Stanley Tucci's in this movie, Thomas Hayden, yeah. fucking church, Thomas Hayden church, like everything about it works. And also to take similar to how to, um, similar to 10 things I hate about you using Shakespeare as like right. a launching pad to do their film. They used the Scarlet letter, as their launching pad to do this story, and it's just very interesting. It's a lot of fun. Emma Stone had like so much charisma coming out the gate in this film, yes, and really put her on the map. There's something just very special about it. I think I I know that it. There's probably people who don't like the movie and they're kind of confused why it's here, but I think it's just a very seminal comedy of the 2010s. I I agree 100. Having seen it. 10 years removed in in retrospect. I I support this being on the list for that reason. I don't think the movie holds up when you compare it to other things. Sure. Like this is I think this is maybe the Mean Girls of this decade. Yes, definitely. And it just I don't think it's as good, simply put. And the other thing too, I was doing homework, required reading. I'm not going to spoil what I watched. I watched two other the two other coming of age movies beside this that I didn't think it compared to. But I think... It, but it's not necessarily the fact that I think that there's anything wrong with it, per se. I think what I was taken aback by was the fact that, again, in the context of 2010, this was definitely the launching pad for Emma Stone, and it's the reason why we have the Emma Stone that we have, without a doubt. Totally. Um, I mean, it's, I, I took notice of her in Super Bad, of course, but this, it's literally entirely her movie. Mm-hmm. It's weird how pretty much every character in this movie is like an auxiliary. Like they have this like weird relationship with the movie where they just come in and out as needed. Right. Because it's weird. The actress who plays uh, her best friend, I can't remember the actress's name. She was on that Disney show, Phil of, Phil of the Future, Phil from the Future. Um, the blonde, I can't, what's the actress's name? Uh, Ali Machalka, who, Rhiannon, Rhiannon, whatever. Her best friend is kind of like not in the movie nearly as much as other people are. Right. It, it, it's it's weird. There's just like all of these auxiliary roles that also like, shout out Amanda Bynes. That's true. It, it's just weird how how minimal every other character is, but it works at the same time. Also, shout out Pin Badgley who was in this U uh, mm-hmm. star, <laughs> which which I love. Uh, you mentioned a lot of the other cast: Fred Armisen, Stanley Tucci as well, uh, Patricia Mac- Clarkson as her mother, Malcolm McDowell. Um. Yeah, the, it's a very fun cast to to see together in this movie, and uh, the fact that like I couldn't, I've seen Emma Stone, and I think almost every movie she's been in, except the favorite, uh, almost <laughs> every movie she's been in, and I kind of couldn't believe how like in all of her I was, even though right. I have all the context in the world of who she is as an, as an actress. So I, I just watched this movie and was like, yeah, I get this, I get why this is. Here, I get why this is a thing. Now, I mean, if I compare it to the other movies that we've even talked about on this podcast, do I think it's better? Uh, probably not, but it definitely deserves to be on this 100. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that there's not a ton more to say, but I'm glad it made the list because I think it's a film that, especially 10 years removed now, like some people probably haven't seen it who are listening to this. And if you haven't, it's a perfect time to check it out. I think still like it really does hold up in the end. It's just a good movie. It's a good coming of age film. And if you really want to see where Emma Stone really popped off, this is the start. All right, PJ, talk to me about our number 79 film. <laughs> this, this number 79 film that I've never seen. So I'm going to go ahead and intro one of Ryan's favorite films of 2019, Midsommar. Yeah. What else is there to say? I mean, we've talked a lot about this movie off air. We talked about it on our uh, best movies of uh, 2019 list. I, so I rewatched this while you were out of town. I, I put this movie on right before bed and it was the most idiotic thing i'd ever done that's the last movie you want to watch before going to bed oh 100 but it is 100 percent in the spirit <laughs> to just my relationship with the film in general which is like i this movie has no business being one of my favorite things of the year but it absolutely is and it's it's the last movie I want to watch before bed that I will always put on before bed. Like it's just this weird, this weird outlier in my life. But I, lo- I just absolutely love Midsommar, and I just think it does things that I don't always respond to, but it does the best version of it in some way. Do I always appreciate slow burns? Not always, not always. Especially mm-hmm. if I feel like I just have no read on where we're going. I, I think. I don't know if that's the case because I think you always get a creepy vibe. You're always going to uh, – I think you're supposed to know that it's reminiscent of, let's say, like Wicker Man. Like you're, you're supposed to know that. Maybe you didn't know that, but um, – I uh, think it's definitely I, – yeah. I knew that it was like a cousin of the Wicker Man, Especially, if you will. I, I think the, the, the visual – stylings of it i think it's represented enough in the trailer that you just pick up on this uneasy creepy feeling and so i do think that that's always there so i think that's really what works for me is that i'm always wondering what's around the corner but i'm also just like in awe of florence Pugh. uh i think it's jack rayner's best movie will poulter uh plays one of his best friends who i'm just like randomly all about will poulter i think he fucking rocks but I'm also just like really interested in Ari Aster as a director because he's one of a uh, few directors who got me into horror with Hereditary. I don't think it's I don't like the ending of Hereditary, uh, but I do think it's a very uh, functional. I I do very much enjoy that horror movie. I know you have your thoughts on that, but um, Midsommar is a, a different type of movie, completely different beast. Uh, the performance, the way that it builds upon itself, just the absolute feeling of dread that you feel for two and a half hours the opening scene will make you want to uh poop your pants it, it's so so heavy right out the gate and it just absolutely sets the tone and overall i just found this movie to be very affecting and it's there's a lot of things in it that i'm like oh my god i can't believe like this is on screen because it like there's this weird contrast because this movie's also it's very affecting and like deep and dark but it's also like in this very like um overly lit overly exposed right beautiful landscape and so it's just like it's just always so interesting in that way but anyway florence Pugh is uh the reason to stay and uh i wish that she was nominated but unfortunately she's not yeah we're we're gonna watch this it's just one of those things that i put off and that's my fault and i understand the love for it though all the same even though i haven't seen it and a lot of that comes from the fact that, like, I understand people's love for Ari Aster. 
that's I think why I understand people loving it because I was one of the few who wasn't super taken with Hereditary, but I respect the people who were, so I can see if he took what he did there and did something even more him, I guess, would be the way to say it. I can see the respect, and I can understand why people love it. Do Do you have other friends that are all about this movie? Yeah. Am I under, does Jacob love this movie? I think Jacob loves this movie. Dan Brunner um, of okay. all of the belts, he loves this movie. You know what I think? I don't think you're going to like this movie. You really think? You really, I, sorry, I, you really don't think I will? I, I'm just, I don't know. I'm reading tea leaves. I don't think it's because of Hereditary. It's a different kind of movie. It's right. A, it just is. But I just I I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'll good be like you. A movie that you had no business liking, and maybe I'll like it too. Like, who knows? I I know that everyone really wants me to watch it. Who I've come across who knows I haven't That's, seen it. That might that might be why I think you won't like it because maybe we're building it up too much. I'll go in with expectations of just watching it. I think, I, I think I can separate myself. I, I do think it's possible, too, that like within the first five minutes, you'll be like, oh, this this is what we're doing. <laughs> like You're going you're gonna to know right away if you're – you're not going to know right away if you love it or hate it, but you're going to know right away what kind of movie it's going right. to be. <laughs> well, that that's pretty much his nature because, I mean, I felt the same way about Hereditary. It didn't take Hereditary very long for it to become exactly the movie that you thought it was going to be. Right. Um, so that's the that's kind of that. If you want to take over uh, from yeah from here on out, all of the movies in bold are a little bit more your speed for the most part. So if you want to go on and switch, you can take over. Sure, I'll and- I'll jump in on our seventy eight then. Uh, seventy eight was one I think you recently just watched this. We had talked about it was one that you hadn't seen. That's right. But I really wanted it to be on the list because I felt like it really had to be here, and that is her. Spike Jones's her. This is such a phenomenal film and one that has really, really stayed with me. I think it has a really interesting conversation about kind of our need for technology and, Mm. like, the way it's evolved over time and the idea that eventually we have essentially relationships with our technology. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? I think this is easily Joaquin Phoenix's best performance. And also, Scarlett Johansson is incredible in this. Um, This is a film that is slightly futuristic while also feeling completely contemporary. It's a really amazing balance that is very striking at times, and I really love it for that. I just find myself so lost in this film every time I watch it, and I have such a hard time not absolutely falling in love with it. So I watched this for the very first time a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. My takeaway: This came out in 2013. Yes, late 2013, early 2014, one of those. Um, right now, on January 13th, 2020, I, I still like feel like it is the one of the most like if we could rank top like 21st century movies that represent 21st century, this would be top five easily. It, it's it's crazy how little culture has changed when you look at it through this prism. Everything you just spoke about, our relationship with technology, even our relationship with like online dating, which mm-hmm. is kind of like loosely what it's about uh, to the extent someone who can't uh, emotionally connect to people. And, you know, that's a very complicated thing. And it's something that all of us experience. A lot of us, more than ever, just because the internet didn't exist for a generation, but 
we're finding it very off-putting and strange, and maybe it works for some people, following falling in love with people over the internet mm-hmm. without physical touch, uh, just based purely on the sound of someone's voice. Or, or the conversation or the, that you had. Or, like, yeah, the conversations you have, and the fact that they're there for you when no one else is. Like, it's... They they really make a case, and I understand a lot of uh, what Amy Adams says, and it's part of the movie. It's just that, like, it's really about do you want to give in to this thing and accept the fact that, like, you're you're going to let yourself be happy versus not happy? It's like, is this actually worse than being with someone in person but miserable for the rest of your life? Like, it, it does raise a lot of questions, and I think it's super thoughtful but it also does a great job like world building too. Totally. It's, it, it's in a world that it's, it's just a great science fiction film in that way. It kind of reminded me of the leftovers has a lot of like those aspects, the right. departments, the government, the way all that's laid out in this kind of world. I love that shit, man. And dude, the ending of this film is so kind of just like beautifully heartbreaking and yeah. very sober or, I guess sobering would be the correct way to say it. Sobering and somber, but also strangely beautiful. Yeah. Like there's just something about it that really speaks to us as people now. I agree. And I think that's why I was so drawn to it when it came out. I think it's why I continue to be drawn to it. A lot of what, with what you just said as well, because it feels like it's so about what we're dealing with right now. And the idea that, Technology is the thing that we've decided is the way that we're connecting with people, and that seems to be such a weird thing. Right. Like, the world's so different than it used to be. Like, I love movies like Manhattan, but that's not the way that relationships and things like that really seem to build anymore. Right. Because of the way we have changed. And so, this movie really speaks to a lot of that. Well. Another another thing that this movie does, I just didn't expect at all, but it also just makes 100% sense. I did not expect the, and I know this sounds like I'm being funny, but I'm actually being kind of serious because I'm actually pretty taken by this. I didn't realize how horny this movie was going to be. Oh, totally. Like how it handles sex and intimacy. I didn't, I just wasn't aware that that was going to be the case. That so, right, sequence is really beautiful too. Right out the gate, Kristen Wiig plays the person that he calls from the dating service. And yeah. she's having just like a full-blown orgasm. I remember, like, I have to know who this actress is. <laughs> I looked it up on IMDb immediately after that scene. But um, also the fact, shout out uh, to you Mr. Robot fans, Portia Doubleday, out of nowhere, she plays the uh, the physical proxy. Mm-hmm. When he wants to have sex with her. So, shout out Portia Doubleday. That was a nice surprise. Also, I know a lot about movies. I know a lot about casts and directors of movies that I've never even seen before in my life. But I literally had zero clue that Chris Pratt was in this movie. I, I didn't tell you that when we were doing the rankings. And he, he's so actually quite fun in the movie, too. It's also funny. Because you can tell that he is Star-Lord right there. Because mm-hmm. uh, his haircut's the same and his physicality. So I just thought, I was like, oh yeah, he's going like right into Guardians right Yeah, here. that was right, because Guardians is 2014. So, yeah. just a great movie. If you haven't seen her. It's wonderful. Wonderful. Check it out. It's fantastic. Anyway, moving on. There's like so little we had to say about this movie. Number 77 is Star Wars The Force Awakens. Now, I guess my question to you is, I, I just have no idea what people think about Star Wars anymore. I don't know, I know what, man. I don't know what Star Wars fans think about it, and I, I do not at all want to have that conversation, but it's like, I, I guess my question ultimately is like, I don't even know if this is polarizing. I don't know anymore. I couldn't tell you I, because I no it's idea. so fucking confusing this, at this point. And yeah. that's what's weird. Like, 
you and I both love J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. We both love this movie in particular. I mean, this fucking poster is hanging in the hallway. We, you and I walk past it every day. We both, for the most part, love Disney Star Wars. Yeah, we both, for the most part, love, love Disney Star Wars. Star Wars. We love Star Wars. Right. I mean, everything about this movie was exactly the kind of movie that you and I were bound to love. Do you remember where it was in your 2015 ranking? I want to say it was number one or number two. I was going to say, I, I had like a three-way tie, which is stupid. It was in my top three between um, Creed and Ex Machina. Yeah, and, I think and mine, Star Wars was number three or whatever. Mine were like this and Steve Jobs and The Hateful Eight, I think, were okay. like my top three that year. Yeah. So I, I can't remember exactly how it was laid out, but, you but, know. But, yeah. Yeah. It, okay, yeah, it's weird. There's not a whole lot more to say about this movie, especially because we reviewed its sequel, and Star Wars has been uh, talked about to death this year, but just in general. But it's like, again, I don't even know if this is divisive. It makes all the sense in the world to me. It had to be here. I mean, look, yeah. it was Star Wars coming back in a big way. This defined a decade, in a in my opinion, by doing that. The box office. The box office. Yeah, I mean, it made a shit ton of money out the gate. It made over $2 billion. People, I yeah. mean, this movie, I think it's still the highest grossing film like domestic? domestically. Is it domestic? I yeah, so. and I mean, it almost made a billion dollars just domestically. Yeah. Like, it's fucking crazy how much this m- movie made. And, I mean, look. It, it speaks it's just for itself. Great. Yeah. It speaks for itself. It speaks for itself. So we're going to go ahead and just move on straight <laughs> into a film that you and I both talked about. It went back and forth for a little bit where we thought it should land. Mm. And I think it landed kind of exactly where it needs to. And that is Martin Scorsese's Hugo. This is a totally different film for him in a way that mm. he hadn't really done. But this movie ended up being actually my favorite use of 3D Pretty close, at least, um, for any film shot in 3D, because I thought Scorsese used it so well. He seems to utilize technology in a cool way when he decides to use it. But more than that, like, what a great love letter to, like, where cinema began. Mm. Um, There's just something really, really sweet and warm about it. It's maybe the only PG-rated film he's ever made. Um, It's the only family film he's really ever made. And there's just something about it that just kind of speaks to me it just it's just really wonderful it's whimsical in a weird way but it's got a big heart and again I think a part of that is because Scorsese felt like he needed to say something about where film began Mm. because without film beginning there is no Scorsese so for him to handle it in this way it's just very endearing and Sasha Baron Cohen is really excellent in this film um oh my god why am I blanking uh, there's well, a couple well, people. I'll, I'll run it down real quick. Yeah. So, of course, we have uh, Ben Kingsley, Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Asa Butterfield, Chloe Grace Moretz. Those two, by the way, like Asa Butterfield might not be nearly as big as Chloe Grace Moretz is, but they still are are out there. Asa Butterfield is in one of the best Netflix shows, Sex Education, right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz is just Chloe Grace Moretz. She's she, so good, man. She, not only is she great and has really come into her own as an actress, but she's also just like one of like the hottest things on Instagram. Like she's like one of those celebrities that like people just like obsess over and have like stands for. Like, it's kind of funny. 
uh, Ray Winstone, who's a, a personal favorite character actor of mine, Emily Mortimer, Christopher Lee, Michael Stolbarg, shout out, maybe I mean, one of the best what a <laughs> character cast. actors, Jude Law. Right, yeah. so what a cast, number one, but uh, Ben Kingsley, the, there's something about his performance in this that is truly fucking mesmerizing and wonderful and mm. just a great movie. So I remember skipping out on this just because I thought it was a kid's movie. And yes, it is about kids. It is a family film. Absolutely. I don't disagree with that. But when I thought it was a kid's movie, I thought it was like a kid's movie in the way that no kid's movie would be about the history of cinema. Sure. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was going to be more like the page master, like that kind of thing or the right. Yeah. So I just didn't have the proper context. I, I, I didn't realize there's a little bit more. A little bit more to it than that. And you know what though? That Page Master comparison's not terrible because in a way the Page Master is kind of a film that's a love letter to literature. Like you may not Sure. You know what I mean? Like in the same way that this is a love letter to cinema. But the Page Master would have to be directed by Martin Scorsese for he, me to view oh. it as a twenty one year old. No, no, no. Totally. And I, I agree with that. But I, I actually found that surprisingly apt as a, as like a comparison like i hadn't really thought about that until you said it it's like right. no they are a little bit similar like totally different movies but both of them are trying to function as like love letters to things that formed them yeah and there's something cool about that it won five oscars mm -hmm. it, i i not i like this movie a lot but i'm not like super passionate about it at the same time like this could have easily just been not on the list but i also like that it's on the list, if that makes sense. Right. Like, it's just weird, like, in-between place indifference. Like, it's a a matter of admiration that I think it's up this high. And, uh, I mean, I really responded to the film. Uh, there's another movie that I can't remember if it's on our list, but it came out right at the exact same time as this did. And uh, it was, like, a great, like, oh, my God, I can't believe both of these movies exist. I don't think it's on here. I'll just go on and say it if it's not on here. Which movie? Uh, one more look real quick. Uh, yes, I'm on here. It was, uh, back to back with, uh, Adventures of Tintin. Oh, yeah. Where I was like, holy shit, I can't believe both of these movies exist. They came out, like, right in the same month, I think. So, Tintin was one that actually got, unfortunately, nuked, I think, from the honorable mentions. That was... Yeah, I think so. That That's where... That one was on the list for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. So, not that we don't both adore Tintin. It was just one of those things that fell by the wayside. I'll right. say that much. Um... Let me uh, breeze through real quick the last few movies that we talked about. So I'll just go uh, – I'll start back at 100. I'll just run through it real Let's quick. Let's do it. Because we're in like our bottom third. Uh, John Carter, Furious 7, Attack the Block, Upgrade, Wonder Woman, The World's End, Sing Street, True Grit, Little Women, Gone Girl, Moana, Irishman, Place Beyond the Pines, Tangled, The Descendants, Cabin in the Woods, Overlord, Mad Max Fury Road, Baby Driver, Edge of Tomorrow, Easy A, Midsommar, Her, Star Wars The Force Awakens, and – Hugo. So number seventy five, we're a quarter into the list. It's dread. God damn right it is. Of course it is. Because this movie is just not gonna not be on this list. I mean, look, Dread is arguably one of the coolest reboots of any character to hit the big screen. It was such a smart adaptation at the time to take a very drastically different approach to Dread from what people remembered Judge Dread being. Um, unfortunately, I think that a big part of that was the problem is people remembered Stallone's Judge Dread and they just didn't show up for this, which is really too bad because Carl Urban is fucking 
awesome in this. And not only that, I think the other problem was is that this and the raid were so similar, and they came out at like the exact same time. Right. And people were responding very heavily to the raid, and Dread just kind of went overlooked. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, I love watching both of those movies despite being very similar. But the thing about Dread too, it's like literally none of it makes any sense at all. Like, do I give a fuck about Judge Dread and Sly Stallone in that movie? No, I do not. Does that movie warrant a remake or a sequel? No. no. Does it warrant a reboot? No. I don't give a fuck about Dread. Dread came out and made me give a fuck. Yes. It was crazy. It's also like one of those weird things where like I like Hollywood might still be afraid to follow suit, but it kind of just proves that like maybe you don't need to see an actor's face the entire time. Like absolutely, maybe you can. I, I thought that was such a thoughtful experiment for for this movie. I don't know if it gets enough credit for doing that, but at the same time, it's like maybe we will buy into that. Maybe and I think there's probably been a few examples since then where that's been the case that I can't think of off the top of my head. But well, I would one of them I could dread. think of is Force Awakens. You know, Kylo for the first half of that movie stays in the helmet. I mean, obviously, yeah. that changes, but they do at least for a while they do keep it off, right? Or keep it on. I should I'm say. I'm trying to think. I can't go through it in my head, and maybe it's not worth trying. But just like faceless characters, V for uh, Vendetta. I was gonna say even like Captain Phasma. You could say that about yeah. in the first movie. It was like. Obviously, she kind of became nothing, but she was a cool character at the time. Yeah, but and I, I think know. it also speaks to Carl Urban, like yeah. as an actor, that he's able to carry the movie without us really seeing him. I mean, you see him, but right. it's just from the chin down. Like that's how good he is in this. And this might be like maybe the the most. Is this the best cult movie on our list? Maybe I don't know if there's it gets more cult classic than this. I don't think it. I mean, there's a couple that I know are kind of cult classics that we'll talk about um, that are on this list, but okay. this might be one of the biggest. Right. Outside of maybe Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> right. Oh, that's yeah, okay. But definitely the, the fan base and the fact that people are pleading for uh, maybe not another movie, but a Netflix series, things like that. I mean, it, it, it I just should happen. I think they're making happen. an Amazon show now is wow. where Dread ended up. I'll, I'll take it. I don't care. I love Dread, and uh, I would love to see more. So Yeah. Um, moving into our number 74, this was a film that I was very pleasantly surprised. And actually, talk about cult film. This is one that I'm really, really glad made the list. It's a movie that stars the late Anton Yelchin, who is just absolutely dynamite in it. But more importantly, it stars Patrick Stewart in one of his only villain turns. And he is absolutely terrifying, and that is Green Room. This is a film that fills me with much joy as much as it does much dread (laughs) in a really, really cool way. One of the best horror thrillers easily of the decade, but just something truly frightening in the idea that you go to a club as a band to perform music and to be taken hostage by white supremacists, and what does that do? What a great film. So, again, as somebody who played music in a band who who packed up the van and went to some super shady areas in eastern Kentucky, out in the middle of nowhere, some just crazy, like, run-down venues just to play a show, I, I vibed with that aspect of the movie. Now, I love cool shit. I love... Uh, intense situations. I love just interesting twists on movies. And so that paired with, oh my God, what if they are trapped in a building filled with Nazis? Yep. 
in in extreme circumstances. I mean, I was all about this, and I I was so excited. I got Jay Williams to go to the movie theater to see this, and Jay Jay doesn't even think Spider Man Far From Home warrants a visit to the movie theater. But I got him in 2015 to go with me to see Green Room. And uh, I was eating it up. It was crazy. His girlfriend was with us. And uh, she was not prepared for the type of movie that it was. And uh, it, like, made her physically, like, ill. And she, like, had to get up and walk out because of how, like, It's real it visceral, was. man. Like, yes, it is. It's a fucking intense film. And uh, Jeremy Sonnier is somebody who uh, I was really looking out for. I can't remember exactly when I watched Blue Ruin, but just the, the pairing of Blue Ruin and Greed Room. I was like, oh, yeah, he, he's great at directing movies with colors in them. Uh, he is someone that I had on kind of like how I felt about San France after I saw it. Like, man, I need to watch out uh, for this director. He's very interesting. And Hold the Dark, I wasn't thrilled with on Netflix. I didn't really care for that movie. Aspects of it, sure, but... Uh, he did sort of set the tone for True Detective Season 3, which was sort of its comeback season, and overall was great, too. So uh, I'm still looking forward to more from him as a director, but you did uh, mention the late, great Anton Yelchin, and uh, and uh, Imogen Poots is in this as well. And that was the second time that they had worked together. Um, most right. people probably don't remember. This is a movie that... I didn't even fight to get it on the list because I knew it wouldn't warrant as much as I wanted it to, and that was Fright Night because that was the first time that they had worked together. Yeah. And that movie fucking rocks too, and they're both really, really great in it. I just I, I just love this movie. We watched it recently, I think, since I've been here too, right? We watched yeah, it we on... watched it around Halloween time because yeah. I usually try to do like the 31 Days of Horror type thing, and that was one of the ones we watched. Yeah. So Green Room's awesome. Uh, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It is uh, very visceral- a violent horror thriller. More of a thriller, but there's horror to it as well. Uh, it's like real-life horror. That's the difference. Like, it's not the typical horror. It's it's real-life fucked-up shit. Speaking of horror thriller, next up is maybe one of the most impressive... It, this was like a movement. Like, the, in the internet age, this was like a great meme of a movie, but like in the best way possible. It also warranted a hell of a theater experience... And it is the, uh, well, I'm not going to say that because it spoils something else on our list. It, it's just the the surprise shock that is A Quiet Place. Yeah, this was one that I knew we had talked about. We both wanted it to be here. And A Quiet Place was a film that none of us knew what to expect coming from it. Like, it was a film starring Emily Blunt and John Krasinski, directed by John Krasinski, who at the time was not really a proven director. Right. And him doing a horror film for Platinum Dunes, like, it, it all just seemed kind of weird. But mm. then those the marketing started, and those trailers were very, very interesting. And it drew us all in and created arguably one of the best cinematic experiences I had all decade. Because going into that film, I saw it, of all places, I saw it at the Arclight. Like, we went with a big group. It was, like, me and some of the Schmodown people. I've never been in a theater that was so quiet. Right. Like, people weren't even wanting to eat their popcorn because we you were so invested in the film and the feeling of that dread of making too much noise that they that you felt like that monster might come off the screen and get you. Right. And that was really, really cool. What a great film in its use of sound design and actually having someone who was deaf as one of the leads and, mm. like, the use of sign language really, really pops off. It, it's just a really awesome film 
And it's an experience that will never be replicated quite like that again. And I'm always going to be thankful for it. I, I echo everything you just said. I think what's fascinating, too, and we've seen it with the marketing even for the second movie. The marketing of the movie, particularly the posters, don't really support what all is going on. Like, I think about her in the bathtub, and it says a yep. quiet place, and that, like, I can't think of the font, but it's that Lion King font, and it just looks like it could have been, say, any forgettable like B-level horror movie that's come out like um like sorry if you like these movies but like Dark Water do you remember that movie with Jennifer Connelly Yeah oh, I remember that movie like, it could have been like The Ring like it could have been The Ring yeah which I definitely. like The Ring but movies like that for the most part are typically bad it just looked very generic sure I, I'll just say it that way it looked very generic when it came to the posters and so like the posters weren't selling Ryan Snelling like if you want Ryan Snelling to get in there you need to talk about the aliens and you need to talk about this weird like a bad robot sci-fi aspect that it has to this movie uh because that's ultimately what I I love or the pairing um I love everything about this movie uh John Krasinski just absolutely balls out i love that he made this with his wife i love that it's becoming something else that it has a sequel we'll see what that's like but a, i don't know a quiet place just kind of like took uh general audiences by storm that year and it mm-hmm. was kind of like the the get out of that year Definitely. right because it came out a year later i think um, yes, or a year before, I can't remember. Right. One of the one way or the other. So when you talked about how weird it was that John Krasinski was coming in to direct this horror movie, it's kind of like Jordan Peele kind of gave him permission with that, uh, which is really good um, because it definitely just benefits us because it's awesome. And uh, I love A Quiet Place. It was very uh, – it was scary. It was emotional, and uh, I'm just here for it. I thought it was a great premise. Yeah, no, definitely. And if you didn't get to see A Quiet Place in theaters – Definitely check out the second one in theaters when it comes out because I'm hoping that the experience can be not necessarily mimicked, but can be compatible to what it was the first time. I think it should be replicated. I mean, it's the same. I'd hope so. Well, we also don't know how different the movie is, so I don't want to say it'll be completely replicated. Would I love it to be? Yes, because like I said, it was one of my all-time favorite movie-going experiences. But this movie absolutely deserves its spot on the list, and I love it for that. But looking into our number 72, we're getting real close to the end of this list for this podcast, Mm. is a film that I'm very happy made it on here. It is a film by Steven Soderbergh that I adore very, very, very much, and that is Logan Lucky, starring Channing Tatum, Daniel Craig, and Adam Driver. This was a film that kind of took a lot of us by surprise because this was a movie that Soderbergh decided to do on his own, including the marketing and stuff. Like, he took everything in-house, essentially, to sell the movie to audiences, Mm. and it was a very interesting experience, or experiment. It didn't quite work in the way that he was hoping, because audiences didn't quite show up for it. But for those of us who did, we were treated to arguably one of the funniest, most quirky heist films that you could possibly imagine, with a really electric cast. And I think this is when I realized just how great Adam Driver could be. Sure. But also, Channing Tatum, who I've come to very much like as an actor, I think he's grown a lot. He's really great in this. But Daniel Craig, playing so against type of what we know him to be, (laughs) he is so hilarious and over-the-top in this movie, it is almost Best Supporting Actor nominee-worthy. Like, that's how good he is. Did you know that I saw this movie in a theater? 
No, I didn't. Isn't that hilarious? That's awesome. It, it I, I mean, like, thank God. It was just like on a whim. Like I was like, yeah, I like Soderbergh. I have nothing else going on. I'm just gonna go see Logan Lucky, and it, it was just kind of it was a weird thing. Like flip a coin, I don't go see that movie in theaters, but but I did. I very much enjoy it. Steven Soderbergh is maybe the most frustrating director for me personally. You've heard me talk a lot about this, especially since uh, the laundromat came out uh, since I've been here. But Steven Soderbergh is personally frustrating just because I think he is so hit or miss when it comes to my sensibilities. I loved the movie Unsane. Was very disappointed with High Flying Bird and the laundromat. Very disappointed. But... So it's like we're kind of like two, in the past five years we're two for four, with totally. uh, it, for me personally for for Soderbergh, and, and you know it's been hit or miss elsewhere in the decade too. Contagion I liked, and then he followed it up with Haywire. It's like okay, Magic Mike you were never going to sell me on. Uh, I still to this day have not seen it. Unfortunately, I do want to though because uh, I hear that there's a lot more to it. But at the time, I just I saw what I think a lot of people saw in Magic Mike and didn't think that it was for me. So. Personally, Soderbergh is just frustrating in that way. Logan Lucky, I'm glad to say, very big fan of this movie. Um, you're absolutely right about Adam Driver. It was sort of the first movie that I'd seen post Force Awakens that it, like really convinced me that I could be an Adam Driver fan because I was a little bit indifferent at the time. Mm-hmm. Still haven't seen like Lewin Davis and some of those other roles that he was in at the time. So, um, so that of course, Channing Tatum is somebody who I, I've been a big supporter of since Twenty One Jump Street, and I've defended him, and he just kind of showed up. And also, I just love how Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mine too. So the fact that they kind of made Ocean's Eleven in uh, a place that is similar, like recognizable to where I come from, it's not entirely, um, but it's very similar, and I, I kind of like felt at home in that way. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was very cool. I thought he uh, took a chance and made a movie in that part of the you know country that really doesn't, doesn't normally get, shown. get seen. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but also he made it fun and entertaining, and it's just a fun movie, man. Like everything about really it good. just really works on a level that I wish more movies did. Um, there's just something really electric about it in a weird way because it's also arguably one of his quirkiest films. Yeah, like it's not really for everyone, and yet. It's totally for everyone, if that makes sense. I, I'm not a fan of like quirkiness and whimsy, and I still like this movie a lot. Yeah. I, is it fair to say, maybe it's impossible to recall all the movies that we mentioned, but I feel like Logan Lucky and maybe, I don't know, Let's see. Midsommar are maybe the least viewed movies on this list in the film community. Like, I just feel like Logan Lucky is a movie that not even the film community has seen a lot. Yeah, I mean, you're probably not wrong. I mean, maybe Upgrade, because Upgrade didn't do, like, super well, but the film community seemed to embrace it. Maybe Attack the Block, too. And maybe Attack the Block. Um, Even maybe, arguably, Overlord. Um, (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Overlord didn't break even, which I was shocked to see that. Right, that's what I mean. Crazy. I think it was a $40 and it only made, like, 37 I mean, I, I like to think that a lot of our listeners did see these. Um, but if you did not, this is like such a perfect launching point to push you guys to see other things is, which is really what I'm hoping. The movie that I'm fearing nobody has seen is uh, coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Including you, <laughs> but we'll get there. Well, I, I know I haven't seen it. Right. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so anyway, Logan Lucky, uh, number 71. It's a movie that I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on. No, definitely not. Um, I do think people are going to. People are going to be most critical 
like we talked sort of about the Irishman and Mad Max Fury Road being these like bullet points. I think people are going to be most critical of how we've ranked and placed superhero movies. I don't disagree with this. Like that's going to be what people point at the most. And we have arrived to, I believe, our second superhero movie of the entire list in the top 100. Wonder Woman first, and now we are at number 71, and that is Spider-Man Homecoming. I was very excited that we got this on the list, number one. Um, I think there was a little bit of back and forth of which of the Spider-Man films we thought needed to be on the list. Uh, I think this one made the most sense, though, because I may like Far From Home more, but Homecoming was the rallying cry that Spider-Man could still work on the big screen. It's the Force Awakens of Spider-Man. Correct, because it made us care again. I mean, it started with Civil War and his introduction in it. Yeah. But more than that, it was the fact that, at least for me, and I know this is very controversial. uh, Look, I grew up on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Obviously, you did as well. Like, we were both there at the beginning. We were there. And I like those movies. But... I never felt like they were the Spider-Man films that I had wanted for so long because Tobey Maguire is obviously much older than being like in a high school kid and it didn't find all the heart and like the almost street level vibe that I had hoped that the character could achieve. Homecoming did all of that and more. Homecoming really felt like a Spider-Man film where he was the hero of a tiny part of a bigger world but he wants to be more, and that's so in keeping with the character when you consider in the early comics he was trying to join the Fantastic Four, right. and he thought he was bigger than himself, only to realize, no, maybe I do need to be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And there's just something about that idea and him doing like the weird odds and ends of like trying to stop a bike thief and right. things like that that is just so fun. And again, to bring this character back in a way that... Spider-Man 3 had already kind of waned on the audiences. Then The Amazing Spider-Man came out, and people either liked it or didn't. And then The Amazing Spider-Man 2 basically imploded the franchise right? and the character. So it was what was next. And Homecoming ended up being the best of both worlds because it also was a Marvel production under Kevin Feige. Right. And so I literally mean it's The Force Awakens for Spider-Man, but there's for the obvious reasons, but also just the idea that, like, something I've said about Force Awakens in retrospect, do I think that The Force Awakens had to rely on nostalgia, or do I think that it had to bring back all the old characters or, or, or rhyme with A New Hope, whatever, all that stuff? No. It could have been a lot of things, but I also agree with every single instinct that went into making that movie. Absolutely. And I agree with every instinct that went into Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh I think the the most controversial and the most divisive the things that people like to argue about now are, are the uh, implementation of uh, Tony Stark and his relationship with that character. And I, I think that instinct is accurate. Where you are when you make that movie in 2017, it's like, no, that's, that's how you bring Spider-Man into the MCU. That's how he belongs here. Can you grow out of it eventually? I understand that criticism, but that's, that's how you do it. That's how you make a different type of Spider-Man movie. You get rid of the Uncle Ben stuff too, uh, the recast. I think... Even though I love where Marvel is right now, and they maybe make better movies than ever before right now, but I think what Marvel's lacking in the second half of the Infinity Saga compared to the first is that there's just something about those actors that you mm-hmm. can't imagine any other actor doing it. Right. And I kind of poked fun at Chadwick Boseman earlier, uh, but um, even even 
um, fucking Benedict Cumberbatch is Doctor Strange. Like, he's is he great in the role? Absolutely. But he's not Robert Downey Jr. Right. He's not what we say about Hugh Chris Jackman Evans. and Ryan Reynolds, even outside of the MCU. Tom Holland, of all of the recent additions, is the most, oh my God, you are that character. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it, it's the anti... Uh, I think what a lot of people think about Brie Larson, how mm-hmm. we're kind of like not convinced yet that she is our Carol Danvers yet. Whereas uh, Holland, we are all in on like, yeah. it's impossible to look at anyone else as Peter Parker for me right now. That's right. And that's very, that speaks a lot to him. Yes, it and does. it speaks a lot to the way that Feige understands the character. Mm-hmm. And I would even say that John Watts understands the character. Totally. And so I think that's really great. And I also want to say this film also arguably has one of the best MCU villains because the MCU is 100% known for having a villain problem, quote unquote. I don't always necessarily agree with that, but Adrian Toomes, played by Michael Keaton, is easily one of the best MCU villains because he's so human. He's, again, that friendly neighborhood approach meant that you were seeing the ground level of what something like the Avengers' first battle did to people in life and the yeah. repercussions of it. It's also just so genius. Totally. It's, it's so obvious, but so genius that if, if you're selling this as, Oh, this is Marvel doing John Hughes. Okay. This is about teenagers coming of age, high school. What is a, a boy with a crush's biggest supervillain? It's, the dad. His crush's dad. Yep. And that's just like so obvious, but like so perfect. And the fact that they revealed it in the way that they did, it's like, oh my God. I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is Spider-Man Homecoming going to be the highest thing if you if you rank the Marvel movies? Maybe not. But I I do like that it's on the list. I like that it is it is where it is. And uh, I just love the film. Did you, do you, you saw this in theaters, correct? Of course I did. Do you remember the audience's reaction when they opened the door and you realize that Adrian is the crush's father? Like, the, I remember um, the first time we saw it. I remember how I felt about it and how my sister felt about it, who I saw it with. I don't, I don't know if I remember the audience per se, but I feel like, I mean, my memory just tells me everybody felt the way I did. But. There was an audible gasp in the theater when it happened in, like, the best way. <laughs> yeah. Like, everyone went, and what it, the fuck? Fuck. And it leads to one of the best scenes in the MCU period, in my opinion, which is them in the car. Oh, 100%. That scene is tense as hell. It's like and I love just one of the most well directed and, uh, well, best, and best acted, best too. tonally. I mean, I just think that scene is like, yeah. It, so, just real quick, like I, I kind of want to off topic it, but it's totally on topic. Did you watch the Morbius trailer today? Yeah. How fucking weird was it that Michael Keaton was in it and as Adrian Toomes? Is weird. Like, I'm not going to lie. It threw me off. I knew that J.K. Simmons was in the film. I had heard he had shot some stuff. But the the Michael Keaton thing threw me off entirely. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that, like, through this prism where we sit right now, it just kind of, like, reeks of desperation. But, like, if they pull it off in, like, three years, we could be like, man, that was a great play. Totally. Just, like, given the circumstance of where we're all at, it's, it's like I'm only going to take that it's only gonna give me a bad taste in my mouth no and you're not the only one who said that because i got a text message earlier from jacob and he was like so sony clearly doesn't believe in the movie and i was like i don't think it's really that i really think that they just want to push that they're in the mcu now right but it's just unfortunate that it felt like that yeah but moving into our next film this was a film that i fought tooth and nail to be on this list this is a movie that 
I know myself and a lot of film Twitter loves, but yeah. also I think a lot of people just in general, and that is our number 70, Paddington 2. You have not seen this. Yeah. You're not a big fan of whimsy. Uh, I don't like whimsy. Here's my take on this, and this is uneducated. I haven't seen the movie, obviously. I I can bet that even though this isn't my type of movie, I bet I watch this movie and I'm taken by it. And I think I would enjoy it. I agree. Um, I do not think I would still want to put it on this list. But I think you would be surprised. Um, you and I maybe. both went for a diverse list. I felt like at least... As far as family entertainment goes, Paddington 2, I believe, still holds a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, um, check. Yeah, could you look for me and fact check that? It may have fallen, but it was at 100% once upon a time, and they were really pushing the fact. <laughs> it's a 100%. Okay, so this is a 100% rated fresh film on Rotten Tomatoes, which is wild. Yeah. But there's just something so wonderful about the Paddington films and especially Paddington 2 it found the best way to be like one of the most engrossing and wonderful family films I've ever seen but it's just also it just makes you feel good like I would fucking die for Paddington like that's how good this movie is that's what I've heard so like even though like I don't know if this speaks to my sensibilities I actually respect the hell out of this being on the list just because The padding for I haven't seen either one of the Paddington movies, but it's kind of like th- this unsuspecting thing. It kind of reminds me of the the Lego Movie franchise when it kind of came out. It's like yeah. this unsuspecting came out in January, February. Kind of had this release like, oh my god, we didn't know this. This could just not have worked at all. It could have been uh, what was the? It could have been the Emoji Movie. Like either sure. either one of these could have been. And the fact that both Paddington movies have come out and just like gained so much support. And, um, yeah, I respect it. They're huge uh, winners at the box office, too. And uh, so, anyway, I, I respect that it's on this list. I like that one movie, at least, was on here to represent. So Yeah, I, I felt like, especially this one, just because this seems to be, when people talk about Paddington, this seems to be the clear divide of, like, they're both great, but the second one is just, like, yeah. the movie. And there's just something about seeing some of the people in these films, like Peter Capaldi, obviously uh, most people now probably know him as the doctor, but as kind of like the grumpy neighbor and then Hugh Grant playing against type as the villain. Like there's just some very fun stuff about it. And for Paddington to get in this just randomly ridiculous situation that leads to him ending up in prison when he, (laughs) all he's trying to do is get a birthday (laughs) present is it's just so fucking great and genius. And yet the whole time you're just like, this goddamn bear could do anything, and I would go anywhere with him. So, Paddington 2, thank you for being so wonderful and making my heart so full, and I'm glad you're on the list. I love that. Um, this next movie is the movie that I was referring to when I said that, like, nope, maybe nobody has seen this movie. Um, it's, it's Animal Kingdom. So, Animal Kingdom is an Australian movie, most notably starring Guy Pearce. came out in 2010. This movie struck me when I was working at Blockbuster. I saw it on the shelf. We had one copy. I saw Guy Pierce. I was on this big Guy Pierce run back then, right? So uh, I picked it up on the cover. I think it said the Australian answer to The Godfather. It was either that something like that or yeah. Goodfellas. I can't remember exactly what the quote I was. I think it was Goodfellas. I want to say it was Goodfellas, but I could be wrong. 
uh, I thought I had the cover in front of me, but that's the wrong one. So different quotes. But regardless, I was like super intrigued by it. So I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. So for, I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this. I'm just going to let you all know what it's about. Uh, the main character is a 17-year-old. Uh, something bad happens to him that forces him to get um, adopted and associate with uh, a bad branch of the family that is involved in organized crime. And it's, I just think it's fantastic. It's got a great cast, Joel Edgerton, uh, Ben Mendelsohn. This was like the first thing I saw Ben Mendelsohn in. I oh, think, snap. He's in knowledge. this? Yeah. Oh, it's fuck. it's Mendelsohn, Guy Pierce, okay, Joel Edgerton, and uh, what's her face, um, Jackie Weaver from Silver Linings Playbook, right? Um, it's it's a phenomenal cast. It's just it's a really well done film. It's since been adapted and turned into a television series that was on a TNT, uh, which it, it's it's not my kind of show. But me and Jay, I love the movie. Or, yeah, I love the movie, and I convinced Jay to we recapped like the first half of the first season. Wait, that TV show on TNT is based on this? It it pretty much is that. It's kind of like have you seen the From Dust Till Dawn TV yeah, series? Yeah, yeah. It's that kind of treatment. It's like the movie, but expanded into that format. So here's a weird thing about that. That used to shoot down the street from my old apartment in Burbank. Right. Like, I knew about Animal Kingdom as a TV show because there would always be signs. They'd shut down parts of the streets by our apartment because they'd film there all the time. It it is that movie. That's crazy. I had no idea. Now, number one, I really want to watch it for the cast. But knowing that has me even more curious. Yeah. Okay. You should be. And so should everybody else. No, that, definitely. That's like, all. That's all we'll say. Uh, go watch Animal Kingdom. We're in it now. Yeah, I'm super excited. Our number sixty eight is a film that I'm happy made the list. <laughs> I know that you <laughs> probably feel indifferent on it, yeah. but it's high enough that I think you're comfortable with it. I hope. Uh, I, I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll well, you're right. good with it. I'm ecstatic about it, even making the list, and that was. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I have spoken at absolute great length about this movie a couple of times on this podcast, but it still doesn't change the fact that this was easily my favorite film of 2019 when everything was said and done, uh, featuring very fantastic performances. Actually, as of today, nominated for 10 Academy Awards, um, including Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Brad Pitt is going home with that Oscar come awards night, I feel. He's been sweeping all the award shows. But this film just speaks to my sensibilities, and I think that it's just a really great fantasy tale set in 1969 Hollywood dealing with an actor who is trying so hard to find himself in his later career, having a hard time dealing with living with the hottest next thing next door in Sharon Tate and at the time Roman Polanski, and that polarizing world of what that creates inside of him only to lead to arguably one of the greatest escalations and third acts in any film that I've seen in a long, long time dealing with the Mansons. I fucking love this movie. Awkward silence. Yeah, uh, my my opinion hasn't changed. Uh, I know, man. I I don't think this is the worst thing in the world by any means. I definitely think it's more watchable than, uh, say, The Irishman, which I think is... It's a that's a great comparison to make. I love that that 
that versus just because it's it's Tarantino and Scorsese coming back and they're both kind of masturbating with their movies in a way. Honestly, that's my take on it anyway. But um, when it comes to the escalation, I love the ending because that's the kind of shit I love from Tarantino. But I love it best when I like everything leading up to it. And this was the one movie I compare it to some of my favorite Tarantino, uh, Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards. The ending was so uh, satisfying to me because I was that much into everything else that came before it, the character work and just the story that we had had unfolding before ourselves. And I think that's entirely what What's Upon a Time in Hollywood was lacking for me. Every instinct that Tarantino had and everything that he wanted to do with this movie just kind of uh, betrayed my trust in a weird way. And so, yeah, I, I was a little bratty. But I'm also, again, I'm not like hammering in and thinking it's the worst thing in the world. But it's just the fact that like I was just like, man, this is just not what I think you should be doing um, personally. So I it, respect your opinion, dude. It's I, I think it's like easily it's definitely not my favorite Tarantino of the 2010s easily. Um, and I just think there's just so much more going on this year. But I mean, I also this is the most like if a movie ever um this is the most like Oscars movie ever. Right. A hundred percent. I mean like Tarantino doing old school Hollywood, uh taking the risk that he took. I mean it the conversation around it I one hundred percent understand. I'm just not participating. No, and I totally respect it and I understand it. I know it's a film that's not for everyone and I see that a lot online and I get it. Um it, all you know, everyone's mileage varies. It just happens to be my shit. I get it. It's all good. It's number 68. Still did good. It's in the uh, top three-four. It's whatever. You get it. Uh, Technically three-fourths, I guess, yeah. Math. Um, <laughs> number 67, the final film that we are discussing on this podcast. It's called... It- <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done I, on our last I, film. I almost said it's called Tom Hanks. I was just gonna say the name of the actor. No, it's it's called Captain Phillips, starring yeah. Tom Hanks. This is a really awesome film. Um, this is my favorite Paul Greengrass film. Number one. I just want to throw that out there. Okay. I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I just think it's because I'm so in love with Tom Hanks' performance in this film that it makes this my favorite Paul Greengrass film. There's something about the way that he plays it that I cannot believe he did not get nominated for Best Actor that year because if anything, for the last 20 minutes, he should have won. Did he get nominated? No. I was going to say, the movie got nominated for Best Picture, but I couldn't remember if he did or not. Today was the first time in 20 years he's been nominated for an Academy Award. Oh, that's right. Okay. So take that for what you will. Is that what I read correctly? I don't think that's right. Wasn't he nominated for Bridge of Spies? I don't think. Look it up. Tom Hanks Oscar. Someone earlier said something like that, and I was like, that doesn't sound right. But someone ran with it. Well, the L.A. Times said it ends twenty year drought. Okay, so it was all right. Interesting. So now I feel less crazy because I definitely second guessed myself. Um, I did too. I didn't. That's crazy, number one, because when you think of some of the performances he's given over the last 20 years, he definitely deserved nominations, but this was the one where he deserved not only to get it, but he probably really should have won. This movie is one of the most tense films I've ever seen, uh, especially based on a real-life tragedy. There's 
just something so incredibly arresting about how you feel while you're watching it. Um, it's one of the best pressure cooker films I've ever seen. Uh, I would agree with that. Yeah. I remember, I remember poor guy when the villain of the movie was nominated for, I think it was an Academy Award that year. I remember making the joke, you will never be in another movie again. <laughs> because <laughs> I think he was like in some random show he's, this past year. He's in Blade Runner 2049, I think also. Wasn't he? Yeah, I think he is. Maybe I'm misremembering, but he was definitely in another movie in the last couple of years. I can't remember what it was. Uh, I just I was just under the impression that he was like so stereotyped in that movie that like how, real. how the hell is he gonna Oh my god, he was in Castle Rock. I didn't know that. Hey Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? Fuck me. I'm wrong. He was in uh Castle Rock. See, he was in Pirates of Somalia. He played a, see that's that's what I was going for. I was right. right. He played a that was in twenty seventeen, so a few years after Captain Phillips. So I, you know what? I was wrong about that. Good for him. Um so anyway. The um, I agree. Paul Greengrass, uh, I like very much. I don't like every single one of his movies. I thought Green Room was pretty. Or Green Room, Green, Green Zone, Zone was pretty forgettable, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I do like Greengrass, and when he when he hits, he fucking hits. So I had a great time with Captain Phillips. It's a very long movie to sustain that pressure cooker that you talk to. I think it's almost two and a half hours. I think so. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I'll never forget. Uh, breaking down when I saw him break down in the uh, the at the end the of the medical movie. bay yeah. or whatever at the end of the movie I was like fuck man that's so good it, it, that again how Tom Hanks did not even get nominated that year for that alone is mind boggling yeah, it's pretty it, that was a very effective scene I I mean it stayed with me a long long time I actually haven't even revisited this film since the first time I saw it because I still remember how it made me feel. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those movies that I don't necessarily know if I can, like, sit through that right away again, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And, I I mean, it's not even really right away at this point. Maybe it's time to revisit it. But, like, everything about it just really pops off in the best way. This just something really, really great about it. I, I can't really pinpoint what it is outside of the fact that it's just, again, arguably one of the best pressure cooker thrillers I've ever seen. Should we go through this list one more? I think so. Just to give everyone a taste. Guys, how do you feel about the list? They hate us. I can already feel it. I feel the tweets coming. Number 100 is John Carter. Number 99 is Furious 7. Attack the Block. Upgrade. Wonder Woman. The World's End. Sing Street. True Grit. Little Women. Gone Girl. Moana. The Irishman. Place Beyond the Pines. Tangled. The Descendants. Cabin in the Woods, Overlord, Mad Max Fury Road, Baby Driver, Edge of Tomorrow, Easy A, Midsommar, Her, Star Wars The Force Awakens, Hugo, Dread, Green Room, Quiet Place, Logan Lucky, Spider-Man Homecoming, Paddington 2, Animal Kingdom, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Captain Phillips. What a great list. What a diverse list. Can we point out, like, I know we've talked about it a lot, but... What a crazy list of stuff. It's it's diverse in genre, but maybe not like representation of actors. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got Moana. That's Pacific Islander, right? That's true. Furious 7 has a super diverse cast. That's something that that movie should that get a lot of credit series. for. Uh, John Carter, uh, half of the people in that movie are orange. Um, <laughs> John Boyega is in Attack the Block. Wonder Woman. Um, 
There's some good... There's some stuff going on here. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a great list, I think, so far. I'm Overlord ex- is led by a black gentleman? Yes, sir. <laughs> Why did that sound that weird when I said that? <laughs> I, it's I'm like, just... I'm, give me points for being white, <laughs> so I'm acknowledging a black gentleman. Like, that's just not the way you word that, but okay. Look, I'm just going to say I fought hard to get Barbershop 3 on this list, and it did not land. Yes, you did. Uh, yeah. It did not. Couldn't, I tried. Couldn't get it there. No, but... I'm really happy with the results so far. I think that people will be too, I hope, um, assuming that everyone listened past number 100. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) You know, that's my fear. But I think that, again, as we keep going through this, you guys are going to see that, like, we just love different types of film. And we're trying really hard to also hope that you guys will love different types of film and we'll check them out. Uh, There's more diversity coming up as well in (laughs) representation, but also... The, the types of films that are in the the next part, which will be part three, which is number 66 through 34. It's a great list. And yeah, I think the, the movies that you might expect, and maybe you learned this when we revealed where Irishman and Mad Max Fury Road are, the movies that you might expect to be in our top 10 aren't in the top 10, but I'm like just so giddy about our top 33 just because it's like my favorite movie, your favorite movie, my favorite movie, your favorite movie of the 2010s. Yeah. And it's just like someone tweeted out today after all the Oscar nom business, they tweeted, it was a list of every single best picture winner of the decade. And then they just simply asked how many of these were your favorite movie of the year? You know what my answer was? Zero. Zero. Yep. And that's kind of something you and I talked about actually and had really looked at because I mean spoiler alert I'll say it the artist is nowhere on here because neither of us were like man that movie just is the 2010s right like it just didn't speak to us in that way and that's okay like again this is a very representative list of our tastes and I think that it's also one that uh, our audience collectively will attach to because I feel like we are also speaking to their taste Right. Hopefully. I think so, too. I mean, I think, again, I think what it comes down to is I think people will pick apart the superhero rankings, and I don't think people will be able to disagree with the actual movies we discussed, just the number, but it's like, really, like, that's, it's fine. Like, that, that's, that's the part that's fun. It's gonna be like, how dare you say that blah, blah, blah is better than the Irishman? Like, that's the kind of stuff we can rib each other for and things like that. But unless it gets out of hand, but I mean, it, it's just, it's fun, but it's also like, it, it's weird. I'm not trying to make the case that you should, I, I want this list to be taken seriously, but I also want to make it clear that it's just, it is what it is. And so, yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I think that I'm really excited as we break down the next two parts, because there's some really great stuff coming up that I can't wait to talk about. Yeah. Like you said, especially one through 33 it's literally just like movies you and i fucking love that's right so like not that we don't like all this stuff like we tried really hard to make sure that we had seen most of the stuff on here but like between both of us there's not a movie on here that like neither of us saw that we just felt like needed to be on here not like that because i think movies we fucking love started with for me personally number 90 six with wonder woman maybe upgrade attack the block i like but like love i think it probably starts with wonder woman at 96 so sure but 33 to number one it's just like banger after banger after banger yeah and that's what i'm super excited about getting to because there's some absolute great shit 
I was going to say, I think it would be hilarious if we just named the movies off and we're like screaming in between each. Like, we're not even talking. We're like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go, blah, 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 blah. It's just us screaming. It's just like, like fuck yes. It's just constantly, yeah, hooting and hollering. Oh, yeah, I think it's kind of kind of be that way. But also then we're going to be like, you know why this movie fucking rocks? Because everything in it is fucking awesome. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. Get ready, guys. It's going to be wild. That concludes part two. You guys, we're a third of the way through our top 100, and we're halfway through this series. Thank you so much for listening to this. I hope you're enjoying it. Hope it's a lot of fun. Hope hope you're interactive in healthy and positive ways. Uh, have no problem ribbing each other over this kind of stuff. Uh, can't wait to hear from you all. Let us know uh, on Twitter what you think. Uh, we'll pimp out our handles in just a second. But real quick, let me just... Uh, again, pimp out letterboxd.com slash moviehousepod. So right now, the honorable mentions list will be available. That is not ranked. It's just the movies. We will put out 100 through 67 this episode the day before part three is released. Uh, so to be uh, on the lookout for that, go on and follow letterboxd.com slash moviehousepod. And we'll be able to see all of this together collectively. I can't wait for Movie House to follow me back on Letterboxd, you guys. Let me let me tell you right now. Uh, it's going to be a great day. I don't Movie House doesn't follow Ryan Snelling on Letterboxd either. Uh, so. That's what I'm saying. Like I think Movie House has been doing some drugs again. <laughs> I think so, yeah. probably. But probably drinking too much. Drinking way too much. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh man. Uh, where can the good people find you online uh, you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at pj underscore campbell you can find me over at the pj campbell show wherever podcasts are sold and here weekly talking movies and shit with ryan which is my favorite thing so uh, look forward to more movie house guys i'll just be transparent i don't i don't know what's going on like we're we're in this phase this transition this podcast feed is was called something and it might, like, at the time that I'm saying this, it might still be called that thing. But it's not supposed to be called that thing anymore. I was uh, texting while we were recording to, to try to see this through. I don't think it's happened yet. So who knows? If you like the content we're doing here, just stay put. That's all you need to know. doesn't matter what the name of it is. If you're listening to me right now, don't do anything else. <laughs> Except share this shit. Except share it. But also consider how you share it and how you word it. Because you want it... You want to refer to us as the new thing, even though you might be linking an old thing, and it gets complicated, and I'm already annoyed with myself for bringing it up. You guys can figure it out. It's the internet. It's 2020. If you can't, then you don't deserve to listen to us. Then so your name that. is Ralph. Twitter and Instagram, at WhatUpSnell. I think I pimped that out, and uh, we'll see you on the next one, part three, number 66 through 34. See you there. Bye-bye.